Empire podcast this week, Riddle Me This Man, Riddle Me That Man, we talked to Paul Dano, star of The Batman, plus legendary screenwriter David Kep talks about Kimmy. Unbreakable. Hmm. All that. Stay alive, damn it. It's a miracle. <laughs> the usual news and nonsense. On the movie podcast, they didn't think Paddington 2 could get any better. And then they went and revealed that Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky is the voice of the little bear in that country. Amazing stuff. Although now all the world leaders will want in on the act, which raises the terrifying prospect of Paddington 3 starring Boris Johnson. Oh no. Ugh, nobody wants that. Although he's more of a Mr. Curry, anyway. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week we are back, back, back on Terra Firma. We're back from space, the cold reaches of space. And we're back from the Galactic Star Cruiser. What happens on the Halcyon, folks, stays on the Halcyon. <laughs> uh, but I'm joined by my two Pod holiday buddies. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Great big fucking nerd James Dyer is also here. Hello. And Ben, oh Ben, Ben Travis oh, ben. is here. Oh ben. ben, oh Ben, we missed you. Ben. I'm sure you did. I'm sure Where you did. Were you, ben? I was in the little pod at the back. I was in the little pod at the back with my little tiny metal ball tapping it against the window. Tap 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 tap. <laughs> Let me in the front. Go faster. But I was not allowed. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's oh Ben. No, it sounded like you had an amazing so time. Bad. It sounded wild. And to be fair, I've seen you mentioned all of the influencers that were on the trip last week. I think I've seen every single bit of footage that was shot on the Halcyon on TikTok through yes. the week. <laughs> and we're in a lot of it. I we're had in a lot of it. I'm like, I'm looking for James's head in the background of of shots. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there are a few bits where we just all wander into frame <laughs> yeah. and charge out again. Yeah, stand in the background looking gormless. Yeah. Influencers. We don't need their yeah. scum. Indeed. Yeah, there were loads of them. Loads of them. Recognised their foul stench when we were brought on board. <laughs> I feel like I was there without any of the actual fun of being there, which is <laughs> some kind of... Se- I, I'll, I'll deal with that. <laughs> yeah. And we, we got you a gift, Ben. That's exciting. We, got you a gift. we did, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to tell you what it is, because obviously we're meant to be doing this in person, but today there is a tube strike in London, so we're not in the pod booth today. We're doing it over Squadcast instead. So next time, Ben, we're in the same room, we will bring you this gift. And it's not a little knob. You don't just get to play with James's knob for for a few minutes. I meant the knob that you bought in the shop. Can you actually buy like a a Grogu uh, Razorcrest knob thing? No. No. Not that we saw it anyway. Yeah, but it was it was it was good stuff. There was there was good shit. There was good shit. But uh, but yes, as you as you know, if you listened to last week's show, we recorded it on the Galactic Star Cruiser on the Halcyon, and it was a lot of fun. And I have not yet finished my report slash review of it for the website, so I'm, I've got to get on that and get that up on the website and let you guys know uh, exactly what we thought of it. But if you want to know everything about <laughs> the Galactic Star Cruiser, just go on TikTok or YouTube, and everyone's. Filmed everything and put it up there because apparently that's what people do these days. Mm. I don't know. I feel very, very old. Anyway, so we're now back on Terra Firma. We're going to get on with the show. And yes, we should address something before we begin. We are just a film podcast. That is all we have ever pretended to be and sometimes not even that. And we know that you come to us for film-related fun. And that is what we're going to give you folks over the next... Tide 45, folks? Tide 45? Yeah, (laughs) sure. Uh, but we're not blind to what's going on in the world, obviously. So our hearts go out to everyone in Ukraine right now. Uh, and we hope that somehow uh, common sense is restored uh, with regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
And it is worth noting that that wasn't just an, uh, a slightly ill-judged joke at the beginning. President Zelensky did literally voice Paddington mm -hmm. for the Ukrainian mm -hmm. dub of the film, which is yes. wild. Yes, I, I assumed that most people knew that because it spread across Twitter like wildfire the other day. It did. Um, and then there was even footage of him doing interviews and and because you don't know President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who has obviously wowed us all with his incredible courage in the, in the face of everything that that country is facing right now, before he became president of Ukraine, was a comedian, an actor, a director, uh, who actually wrote and directed and starred in, I'm not sure whether it's a film or a TV show, about a school teacher who becomes president of Ukraine, and that in many, many ways made his name. He was on the Ukrainian version of Dancing with the Stars back in 2006. It was footage he of won, him. I think. Yeah, he won, I believe. Yeah, maybe it was 2008. Um, but he won. And and yes, uh, as, as part of his former life, he voiced Paddington, certainly in Paddington 2, and I'm guessing also in, in Paddington. They don't get Ben Wishaw to learn Ukrainian and do the voice of Paddington in all these different countries. Although, quite frankly, I think they should. These these actors are these voiceover actors are frankly lazy. And with just a few hours in Duolingo, you could learn enough to get by. It's not like Paddington's a difficult wow. role, folks. It's just banging on about marmalade. You could learn that in Duolingo in a few hours. That's all I'm saying. And listen, before we get on with the show proper, I do want to say something on a personal note. Um, because in last week's podcast, I uh, announced in a very offhand manner, um, I didn't think many people would pick up on it, that uh, my wife Fala and I are about to become parents. And, uh, you know, in relation to the uh, the Galactic Star Cruiser and where we go back. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'd love to go back one day as a family. Uh, and we are about to become parents. And thank you so much. So, so many of you wrote in, slid into my DMs or just replied to me on Twitter and congratulated us uh, on that. And honestly, that, that really means the world to us. Thank you so much for your lovely, lovely messages. Uh, I will say, just for the purpose of clarification, we're not expecting a baby. We are adopting a child. And it is Ben. <gasps> it is Ben. Ben is our this child. Is ben, this out. is how we were going to tell no you. Is this the present you brought back from Galactic <laughs> this Star Cruiser? This is the brought back. <laughs> a certificate. <Yes>. Documentation. <laughs> a certificate. That means that you are now my child. So, Aww. yeah. You could tap on the window to your heart's content, but I will never <laughs> let you in. Oh, Wow, that's, that's a bit sad. That's how it? this begins. It's a, it's a hard knock life, Ben. What can I say? <laughs> but yes, so we are we are adopting. We're very very close to actually getting that over the line. But we're now at the point where we can actually tell people that that's happening. So that's uh, so we're we're very very excited about that. Um, now should we get on with the show? Hurrah! All right, let's get on with the show. Uh, we have a question. Uh, so someone, and I don't know their name because I'm really really organized. Someone took a cue from something I said in last week's show when we were talking about the Galactic Star Cruiser and the concept of other films that could lend themselves to immersive hotel experiences would be a good question in the podcast. And so someone has actually sent in something along those lines. Basically, the question is, what films would lend themselves to great immersive hotel experiences? How about it? Okay. I mean, there's a bunch. Um, first of all, I'm going to say, just because we've been talking about it, Paddington. Now, here's my pitch. Everyone's just really lovely, really lovely. They all wear bright colours and the rooms in the hotel are based on Mr. and Mrs. Brown's incredible 
bedroom with that amazing chinoiserie with the red. Oh my god, it's amazing. Um, I don't really care about anything else, but that that's that's my <laughs> idea for that one. Uh, just in life. But, I mean, yeah, just in life. I, I swear to God, that that wallpaper. Oh. But what what would that be, though, Helen? That you've, It'd you just basically, be people you've just descri- being lovely. But you've just described a hotel room. That's all you've done. You haven't described an immersive hotel experience. So what would this no, do? Would every now and person, again, a, a yeah, bear in a bath. There would be a bear going around having adventures, and then there'd be people to talk to through. who were lovely. You're a disgrace. I've absolutely thought this through. And what would happen to this bear? Would see the prison, the prison in Paddington too. We're not going to. Ex- we're not going to. No, we're not going to immersive experience a prison. And if we were, it would be the Shawshank Redemption prison. Don't come on. No, you don't want the Shawshank yeah. Redemption prison and, as and Nick's already experience. And he's still scarred by it. So <laughs> he's told he's told you a secret cinema story, of course, with that mm. secret cinema mm. story, which was the immersive Shawshank experience. Now, and I can't emphasise enough, they sent a letter, they sent a communication early on briefing people that as part of the interactive experience they would be the induction into the prison where everyone would be stripped to their underwear so they advised everyone to wear clothes beneath their clothes like shorts and t-shirts where they could keep their wallets in the stuff because they would be disrobed nick of course being nick didn't read this letter <laughs> so just rocked up in his normal clothes and got stripped and put in a cell and was not happy and left I mean, in fairness, that that's that does absolutely sound fucking diabolical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like an absolutely fuck off. He was not happy. That's yeah. not my real answer, though. That's my, like, tying it into previous stuff that's happened on the podcast. Oh, that's answer. good. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's my good. real answer is, well, there's two. But for, let's first of all, let's go with the most obvious, Harry Potter. Now, admittedly, we're going to have some Harry special effects Potter. questions with the, with the magic and how we do that. Like, we could have, you know... V- video ceilings or something so you can have stuff flying around overhead maybe that could maybe help but the aesthetic is really strong so like all the rooms are going to look like right it's going to be based around hogwarts i guess you're going to have magic lessons potions Mm -hmm. is very doable transformation not so much but you can like you know have some defense against the dark arts stuff probably in there as well maybe some herbology don't know what we do about broomsticks but there's stuff there is so much potential there turn up get sorted into your houses then have a massive feast in the Great mm. Hall. Like, have as many roast potatoes as you want. Therefore. And then if you went in a group situation, oh. you could each have your own bedroom, but you could, like, if you had loads and loads and loads of money, you could get loads of bedrooms connected and that have a common room in the middle, like a Gryffindor common room. How good would that be? That would be so good. They've done lots of this already. Like, it would work really well because yeah. they've got the moving paintings already at Universal. So a lot of this stuff could be transplanted. Oh, I like this. I want to go there. Yeah. See, this is the thing. Like, do we really want to be giving these these amazing ideas, <laughs> these billion-dollar ideas to these companies? Uh, you'd have to think that a lot of these, a lot of film companies are going to be watching Galactic mm. Star Cruiser and see how it's received because these feel like no-brainers. These feel, yeah. I guess there are rights issues with a lot of stuff, obviously, but if you're something like Warner Brothers and you, you own Harry Potter, Lock, Stock and Barrel, then why not They own Lock, Stock it? and Barrel too? I would love a Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels immersive experience oh, where Finney Jones yells at you. Uh, that would be <laughs> Isn't that just us living something. in London? Isn't that just the life that we lead? <laughs> what does Finney Jones just yell at you? Just, but you, did, you walked past did Jason Statham recently, Statham. didn't you? So, so who knows? I did feel like I was in a Guy Ritchie movie. Whoa. We could be inside the Lockstock immersive hotel experience and not even know it. But wow, Harry amazing. Potter is a good one. Your, your gift shop could be the room of requirement. Oh my god! Absolutely. Also, so my second good one, and it's going to be a slightly different my experience. Second good one. Second, it's a really good, good one. Do really good one is uh, Lord of the Rings. It's an again a no brainer, but mm. I don't think it should be quite so mission based. 
as the others. I feel like just, it would be breakfast, more just all day breakfast, just second breakfast, third breakfast, breakfast, breakfast four, second breakfast, breakfast elevens, yeah. luncheon, tea, yeah. the whole whole nine yards. Um, Smoking pipe weed. There'd be some walking. <laughs> You'd be on the edge of a you know national park or something, so you could just go for long walks with your mates. Um, well, there'd be a be, lot Helen? of natural fibers. I just you know it'd just be like hanging out, man. But what would it be? So what are you saying? Which part of Lord of the Rings? Which which? Oh, which you'd be area? based in Hobbiton, Kirith but you could Ungle. maybe you could maybe go for like some you know for some long walks to Rivendell or something. <laughs> James rocks up like I'm here for the Mordor experience. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Where is Minas Morgul? <laughs> Bring me the One Ring immediately. Yeah. I am James Dyer. That's it. <laughs> one James to rule them all. Everything should be massive, so you feel like you are hobbit-sized in scale. Oh, that's and then good. Like, oh, they did that at Cannes. They oh, did that they? at Cannes. Yes. The, Cannes. the Year Fellowship came out. They had the bars were really high, so you felt like hobbits or like the little rat guy in Instead Star Wars. Instead of serving you pints, it should be how big the pints look to the hobbits. Where he's like, they do, they do pints. <laughs> oh it's no, like, no, 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 no! Pints. If if everything there, if if all that stuff tastes as horrible as butterbeer and Whoa, blue milk it does, no, 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 I no. Like because, no, no, because hobbits are all about good food. There would be no messing around with like artificial ingredients in, in Hobbiton or Rivendell right. for that matter. Because no, you no, can no. shove your limbass bread up your arse as far as I'm concerned. Oh, no, that, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't actually. <laughs> that's that wouldn't not be how one eats that's, that's, not. that's why it lasts so long. It's actually a suppository bread. <laughs> to be fair, that sounds oh, no. preferable to actually eating it. It looks like the driest substance you've ever, it would block you up for weeks. By the looks of it, well, yeah. It's, look, it's everything. You, it's actually supposed to taste quite good. That that, that is canonically accurate. Is that it tastes good and sees Gollum through. didn't like them. Yeah, of course, Gollum didn't like them. In it, his digestive system has been corrupted by the One Ring. In it, he just wants raw fish <laughs> yes. and McDonald's. Could you uh, could you have a Lord of the Rings tower uh, that looks like the Tower of Saruman? Or thank. Or thank. Yeah, okay, I'll thank him in a second, but the Tower of uh, Tower of Saruman. And there might be, like, there could be an underground adventure as well. You could have a little bit of Moria, maybe. I don't know. But I, yeah. I, I very strongly believe that it shouldn't be activities-based except for walking. Yeah. It, it should be more just, no. like, hanging out. Just it would be walking and smoking, though. You have It'd to be bear walking that and smoking pipe, pipe and a bit, a bit of chat. And then in the evenings, some people would definitely sing and tell stories. And I'm sorry, but you're going to have to put up that, you know. No. Oh, um, this sounds awful. It would have to be like a piss-up. It would have to be a hundred uh, an 111st birthday with dragon fireworks <gasps> and all of that. Or, dragon yeah. fireworks. Or would it be a quiet dinner and then 13 strangers randomly turn up and refuse to leave and insist on like destroying your room and leaving food and pots everywhere? <laughs> Jimbo, I think you just stumbled upon something. The A Quiet Place Interactive Immersive oh Experience. Oh you God. and a group of friends check into, they, they deck it out. It's like the farmhouse from A Quiet Place and you each check into a room and you cannot make noise. At all. It's just this beautiful <laughs> retreat. It soothes the soul. It is a balm for the soul. Uh, but quite if you make some noise, you do get ripped apart by yeah, one yeah, of the of many animatronic creatures we have mm. built specifically for the purpose. A lot of my immersive hotel experiences end up with mm. many or maybe even all of the guests dead. I should point that out at, yeah, at this Yeah, as juncture. your lawyer, Chris, I do have concerns about that approach. Um, we, we'll, we'll discuss Sounds them in detail later. If no one's around to sue, Helen, you're good. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if a lawyer sues in the woods and nobody hears, do you really get sued? That's the question. <laughs>
I couldn't think, help but think of loads of horrible ones. So speaking of everyone being dead by dawn, <laughs> I was like an Evil Dead 2 cabin experience that, that just like no. shits you up through the night and all the heads <laughs> on the cabin start moving and talking and you oh, get attacked God, by no. a hand at some point. That could be kind of fun. No, mm-hmm. you couldn't. Um, mm-hmm. Another horrible one. Hack your hand off. Yeah, hack your own hand off. There you go. Uh, yeah. Another horrible one would be a Matrix experience where you end up in the real world eating gruel and then getting Whoa. forced to go to a, a sweaty oh, sex no. rave. Uh, I mean, if you want to make that really terrifying, just have everyone watch The Matrix Resurrections again and again until they, you know, Oi. I will sign into Die. that hotel. Oi. Helen and I will go to that hotel. Yeah, we'll have a great yeah. time. Thank you the very much. The Heart of the City Hotel. Is that, is that what you yeah, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. The Continental, a John Wick experience. Ooh. Make it happen. Ooh. I don't even know what would happen, but there'd be some guns involved. See, so are things happening around you? Because the, the Galactic Star Cruiser, you were you were at the hotel, you were going about your normal hotel stuff, but there was a larger Star Wars story going on around it. And I, I feel in a way that we're just simply saying the same films we said a few couple of weeks ago when we did the Lego sets we would like to see. But I was thinking <laughs> Casablanca about Casablanca. I was thinking about <laughs> Casablanca. You go to a hotel that is, is shaped like Rick's. Everybody comes to Rick's. And whilst you are having the great time with the gambling and the drinking and the carousing, the story of Casablanca is happening around you. And so there are actors who look like Humphrey Bogart and there are actors who look like uh, Ingrid Bergman, and Claude Rains, and, you know, and of course, our good friend, <clears throat> Don't do it. I'm Peter taking my Laurie. hair. Uh, I'm taking Peter Laurie will be there, Helen. Perhaps even I could play him and I could be there and I could say hello and welcome to Rick's, the immersive hotel experience. It's okay, Helen. You can put your headphones back on now. I've stopped talking in the voice of Peter Laurie. Don't do it, Helen. It's a trap. <laughs> I'm putting them back on. <laughs> Rightly so. No. Because I've stopped. Oh, no, she's you, done. lapsed into Werner Herzog a bit there. <laughs> did you guys have some libations last week? We did. <laughs> we we did. did have libations. Yes. <laughs> Let's come up with something new. Let's come up. Here, here's a you. challenge. Here's a challenge for all of you. Something that we have never said before. A film June. we've never said. Shut the fuck up about goddamn June. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> die on this particular hill. I would like to go to a desert resort, get ripped to the tits on spice, and everyone just sit around <laughs> listening to Fat Boy Slim. Like that would 100% be the June experience. Not yeah. least of all because I only found out the Fat Boy Slim thing. I think with most of the rest of the internet, uh, quite recently, that Weapon of Choice, you know, the one with the Christopher Walken dancing on yeah, the ceiling yeah. type thing, mm-hmm. contains the line "Walk without rhythm, and it won't attract the worm," and that kind of blew my mind. I feel like James would turn up to the live-action Dune hotel experience and immediately go full Harkonnen. He would assume his final form. <laughs> you know what he'd be wearing? He'd be wearing the sting nappy. Yeah. I'm just saying it. I'd be wearing the, the Baron's gravitational harness, thanks very much. <laughs> he turns up and he goes, it's okay, I am already consuming my own urine and feces. <laughs> I am fully sustainable. You have a still suit. I'll be like, still suit? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, a June, a June experience would be. So you, it would be a desert experience for you, Jimbo? Or would oh, yeah. it be yeah. a, you know... Well, this is the thing. It's like, you know, when, when talking about set visits for June, I'm like, no, I will not go to some soundstage. Take me to the deep desert. I want to go to Wadi Rum and run around with the worms. I mean, it's not like I turned down the chance to go to the desert, James. The set visit was when they were in Budapest. You know, it's not like I was like, don't send me to the desert. You know, you don't always get the choice. 
All right, so here's my challenge to you all. I want you all to say a hotel experience based on a film that you would not ordinarily oh. say. So no Event Horizon, no Evil Dead 2 for me. I can't do that. I will say MCU 1 would be a helicarrier, but let's move on. <laughs> uh, and, you know, no Paddington 2, none of that jazz. We have to come up with something new, folks. We have How to break new ground. Hunt for Red October? Oh, okay. I, I'm interested. Confined Keep talking. location, people under pressure, mission happening in the background. Is it light on amenities? Yes. Um, <laughs> is the living space cramped? Also, yes. Um, but you do have the fun of trying to pick an accent for yourself, so that could be a, a giggle. We shall into lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to go with Vincenzo Natali's Cube. Oh, no. I will not be going to there. Thank you, no. Yes. You so just escape that's room. It. Yeah, you go to sleep in a normal hotel and then you wake up in the cube and have to navigate through. I feel like there's I feel like there's legal implications for this one as well. Like legally speaking, you're not well, allowed I, to dice I people. I think of it being more of a, a you know part interactive part audience. So like we would be in a kind of viewing chamber and specifically Ben would be in the cube. Oh no. Wow. And what? we would watch him navigate. It. So, so wait, we don't take him on the trip to Florida, but we do yeah. put him in the cube. We put him in the cube. Yeah. And we, we put him in the cube and dice him up. We yeah. dice him up real good. Am I being like kidnapped to be put in the cube? Am I having to like do? Am I paying for this experience? As long as you can just straight away identify factors of prime numbers, you'll be absolutely fine knowing which rooms are safe and which Shit. ones aren't. Um, well, I'm going to start brushing up now in case this happens. Uh, what was that? Derivations of prime numbers. Factors, factors of primes. Okay. Oh God! Oh Help. God! That would Help. be bad. That would be bad. Ben, what, what's your what's your one? Look, it's not totally off brand for me, but it is one that doesn't feel like an obvious one. I really want an immersive experience of the Great Before from Soul. How soothing would that be? Ooh. Everything would be like really. You choose that over over the Madrigal House. Oh, okay, okay. Now we're talking. Because then you'd get your own bedroom that was its own kingdom, and you could pick what your power would be, and the house would move. Oh, you wouldn't get a power. Oh, what? <laughs> My power, James, is that I would bring everyone together. That's the true magic. Oh, God, I bet it would be. <laughs> Ben's power to be wrong about the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I'm so annoyed sure I couldn't be wrong about Rise of Skywalker with you all last week. <laughs> <laughs> I would have, I may, maybe I would have found my people at last. I don't think you would. I mean, we weren't not in a Rise of Skywalker themed hotel, James. I, no, I think you'll find Helen. It was it was placed specifically post Force Awakens, pre Last Jedi. You can, of course, tell by certain key factors, which I won't spoil. But there's there are so many. There's so many. We talked about this last week. So you could do an Event Horizon immersive hotel no, experience. No, I'm horribly going there. But you could. No. Uh, you could do a Bates Motel one. You could do the Overlook nope. Hotel from The Shining. You could nope. do all this stuff. All the stuff that we said from the Lego answer two weeks ago, you could do as an immersive hotel experience. Last However, Paradise. You could do Frost and <gasps> Paradise. You could absolutely yes. do that. But that's basically just Galactic Star Cruisers. Why it would is, you yeah. even yeah, bother? Here is my answer. A, it is the Judd Apatown which is a gigantic <laughs> town that is based on all of Judd Apatow's movies, directed and produced. And you can walk around and you can rub shoulders with Ron Burgundy and whatever the hell the characters are called in This Is 40, and you can push them off a cliff. Would you have to stay there for three weeks? 
You would have to stay there. Yes. Because it's a would. bit too long, really. <gasps> Ooh. You said three weeks. Helen. I'm thinking two weeks. Hey. I'm saying get your ass to Mars. Oh, a total recall <gasps> one. A total recall, recall themed. Oh, that would be so good. Oh, a bit uncomfortable so on the boobs, though, because yes, wearing three yes. boobs the for like. Triple a, bras. Yeah, you'd be able to buy in the gift shop. Um, taxis from Benny. Great. Oh, so good. So listen, listen. Get in touch with us because once again we have the billion dollar ideas. I think these things are going to happen. I think these things are gradually going to happen, and I kind of kicking myself that we, you know, obviously we've got access to millions of pounds in capital. We could we could start this up. This could be our ticket out of here, folks. So that's all I'm saying. Okay, I just as your lawyer, I think we should talk about rights issues, Chris. Um and. Uh Rights, Schmeitz, Helen. Um, yeah. Once again, if everyone you invite uh, to try it out accidentally gets killed in the course of the weekend, then they're not going to be there to raise any objections about rights, are they? Mm. Uh, yeah. Again, remind me to talk to you about next of kin. We'll get them to. Uh, anyway, the question was from at Luke Maddox Art. Uh, he said, what other films do you want to see a similar experience for and what attractions would you want to see? There's loads, there's literally loads. We could talk for an entire podcast about this, but we must move on. We must move on. We must move on with the first of this week's guests. But before we do that, i tell you how to get in touch with me on Twitter in order to send in questions. Luke Maddox slid into my DMs. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. That is entirely acceptable. Uh, you can reply to my tweets as well, or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. But anyway, it's time for the first guest. Who do you want? Do you want David Kep or Paul Dano? In fact, you're getting David Kep. I don't even know why I asked. You're getting David Kep. David Kep uh, is a legendary screenwriter. He has written some incredible movies over his stellar career. Jurassic Park is just one of them. Uh, he wrote the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man. He wrote the original Brian De Palma Mission Impossible. He wrote Death Becomes Her. He wrote Carlito's Way. He's a writer and director in his own right. He's written and directed the likes of Stir of Echoes and Ghost Town and Premium Rush. Uh, he's a novelist as well. His novel Cold Storage is available now. And he's got another one called Aurora coming up very, very soon as well. But he is most recently the writer of Kimmy, the excellent Steven Soderbergh thriller, which we reviewed on last week's show and gave four stars to. It's available now on digital download and Sky TV. And now if you have access to Lowe's, I caught up with him on Zoom just last week shortly after arriving back from the Galactic Star Cruiser so if my questions are even more incoherent than normal then please let me off we talked about Kimmy we talked about Soderbergh we talked about his approach to writing we talked about a great many things here's David Kep. do please enjoy we are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the writer of Kimmy Mr. David Kep. welcome back sir how are you? very well thanks always nice to be here where is here for you at the moment where are you, are you in your writing room at the moment? I'm in, a, in a, my writing room in Santa Barbara, California, <clears throat> where we are for the year. We live in New York uh, normally, but this year we're, we're spending this school year in California as my 15-year-old uh, is settling into a new school at which he will board next year. So we thought, um, why not go uh, help him make the adjustment and spend ride out the last year of COVID not in New York City? Is it conducive to writing, this writing room? How much writing gets done in this room? Uh, I've done pretty well here. Um, you know, you don't need much. You need, um, in my case, I need that King Kong poster uh, that's right behind me. Um, it's a nice old one. Beautiful. Uh, and, um, you know, you need your computer. You need some quiet. A window is nice. Uh, as long as the view isn't too interesting. And... Um, 
I like a coffee table uh, nearby in which I can spread out, uh, you know, scene cards and notes and things and try to make some sense of what roughly what order everything's going to go in. Other than that, I, that's that's about it. And obviously, you need something to write as well. Is is this you room? Need a <laughs> idea, yeah, yeah. yeah that could be the tr- tricky part. <laughs> now, Kimmy, which I, I thought was fantastic, by the way, and oh, thank uh, you. Kimmy is an original screenplay. You've written obviously many adaptations over the years, and and uh, how do you divvy that up? Essentially, how do you decide? when you're going to do an original screenplay and when you're going to do something that you know, not necessarily as a gun for hire, but certainly something that is more in the world in the realm of adaptations. Depends on t- two things. Uh, the, the, uh, the idea, you know, when you have the idea, if you feel like you have a good one of your own um, and because originals uh, through historically, but certainly in the last five years need to be written on spec. Um, and it's the best way to work on spec because it's the most coherent thinking, uh, can be done that way. Um, that, you know, you need some space in your schedule and you need to not sweat, uh, oh my gosh, this could all come to nothing. Um, you know, which is impossible to do, but so you, you need to feel financially like, okay, well, money's coming in and money's going out and ideally they're at least breaking even. Um, and, uh, and so I have time to do this thing, which I really want to do and hope that something will come of it, but I'd be fine if something doesn't. Um, so that's, um, you know, that's, but really when you have the idea and when you feel compelled to write that idea, um, in the case, in the case of Kimmy, I thought of it probably two years before I actually got around to writing it. Um, but that's typical for me. I have a story ideas file and I, <clears throat> I get ideas all the time and I park them there and then you see which ones stick with you and, and gestate for a while and nag at you and, and, and keep kind of growing while you're doing other things. And then, and then if they get, if they get big enough, you go do it. So what was the original uh, impetus for Kimmy? Um, I read an article someplace about, um, you know, I, I caught my eye cause I think about those listening devices that we, so many of us have put in our homes um, and uh, gee, that seems creepy. And we've all had the experience of, you know, talking about Philadelphia and then finding an ad pushed to you for a hotel in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's unsettling. And, um, but the, the article was interesting. It was about the Amazon case in, uh, Arkansas that's actually referenced in the film where, um, you know, there were recordings on an Alexa, or no, it was actually an Echo, it was one of their earlier devices, that um, they, the authorities felt might have evidence uh, of a murder. And Amazon didn't want to give up that, those recordings. And so it turned into a, quite a protracted court battle. Um, and I thought, hmm, I know a thriller premise when I hear one. <laughs> um, and... But then I also, so I started digging around, you know, like reading more on this topic that I could find. And I found, um, I found a, a, an article about people who listen to the voice streams. And it, it just had never occurred to me that, of course, there's someone listens to it uh, and they put it to use, usually trying to improve their algorithm and its ability to recognize what we're saying. So I started thinking, oh, so that's a person that listens to it and they hear something that is not so good and they want to report it. 
Um, so, and then I, I told it to Soderbergh and I've been friends for 30 years or so. And, um, he was in London where I was living at the time and we had a, a drink and I told him this idea and he said in his very binary way, either this is great or this is no, this is terrible. He said, this is great. You should write that. Let's do that. And, uh, and then I didn't for a couple of years and then I finally did. And he said, great, let's do it. I told you, I'd do it. let's do it. <laughs> so <laughs> off you went. Now here it is. So you, you've known each other for 30 years. Have you come close to working together before? Have you punched up anything on his movies or has it always been just a friendship? We tried once or twice. It was mostly just friendship. I, I, I tried to get him to do Death Becomes Her way back in the day, in the early 90s. Um, and he said, I think it's really funny. I don't know how to do it. I'm not, I'm not, te- technically that is not a skill I have yet. Um which I thought might be a polite way of saying I just didn't like it. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. We'll never know. Um, then later in the 90s, we tried to, we were kicking around an idea of remaking The Underneath, a, um, that great Ray Milland ghost story from the 40s, the yes. Universal owns. We were both working at Universal and we thought, hey, let's do that. But we couldn't, um, couldn't crack it. So uh, then I think we mostly didn't try. Uh, anyway, oh, I don't know. We might have thrown one or two things each other's way over the years, but never quite clicked until this. But once you click and once you start working on, on Kimmy, what changed about the script? Because it surprised me that you wrote this pre-pandemic because it is such a pandemic movie. And uh, a large part of it is about how Angela has insulated herself with this technology. I mean, you and I are talking in Zoom right now, and it's fantastic. And in that regard, it's, it's opened up the world, but it's also closed Angela's world as yeah. well. And I, I wondered if that was something that, that changed once the pandemic hit. Yes. So the idea was before that and before the pandemic. And after having the idea and saying, okay, that's the world for sure, that, that's the basic uh, events of the movie, now, who is the worst person that this could possibly happen to or best from a storytelling standpoint? Um, so I thought of a character who is afraid to go out um, and has a number of personal issues she's dealing with. So she's found this job. She can do it at home. She's constructed a life she can do at home. She's very good at having that life. And then and it gives me like a bottle into which to put the story, you know, the contents of the story. Um, and I thought early on, first half of the movie, totally in her place. Second half of the movie, she has to go out. Um, and then, so then, but then, you know, COVID came and that was the case for all of us. Everybody's stuck at home. So when I wrote it, I wrote it in the summer of 2020 when we were all in lockdown. And, um, but we tried to forecast, a, it was impossible to ignore the events of COVID and we didn't want to. Um, so, and I was, you know, I ran an outline of the story by Stephen before I started and we were discussing it and I wanted to do it basically when the film was going to come out. So I had to make certain, cause I wanted it to be of that moment. Um, now this moment. And so I had to make certain assumptions about what the world would be like. So I assumed a vaccine would come along and we'd all take it and we'd all get better. <laughs> all first, of us. <laughs> all, first, all assumption right there. Yeah. Um, we'd all take it. And however, um, 
some people, you know, there would be damage to people and some people wouldn't want to go out again. So I actually had a line of, um, you know, on screen at the beginning that said after the vaccine, some people still didn't go out. And then we started meeting Angela in her apartment. Um, you know, we didn't need that line, but it sort of oriented, we didn't use it in the film, but it sort of oriented me. And then Stephen, while shooting, made some what turned out to be very savvy predictions about what spring of, or first quarter 2022 would look like. It would still be around. Some people would wear masks. Some people wouldn't. Um, and and he, he hit it just about just about right. As filming began, are you the writer on set uh, or do you let these things go, David? Early in my career, I would go to the set as often as I possibly could because it's exciting. You know, there's your stuff and there's actors who do it. It's just it's very exciting. You know, you, it's 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 great fun. Um, and then I came to realize you know, there. No matter how well anyone's doing it, or God help us, poorly, um, <laughs> it's it's to my mind, to the writer's mind, it's wrong because it's not how you saw it in your head. You can't help but picture it all in your head, especially if you have any aspirations toward directing, um, which I did or do. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it was on my third movie with De Palma, I was on the set of uh, Snake Eyes and uh, I was up in Montreal and um, I was sitting there and, you know, I'd, it, there was a scene aside from just his stylistic choices that wouldn't have been mine, brilliant, but wouldn't have been mine. Um, there was a scene where the door was uh, over here on the right. And I just, it, it, as I'd written the scene, I always firmly imagined the door on the left. So everything was backwards. And he, he, and it, it just threw me, you know, and he read my uh, face and said, what's wrong? I said, I, I just always thought the door would be there. It's over here. And I just don't know how that's going to work with blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, it's going to work. I said, okay, okay. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> and, um, and then I kind of paused and I said, uh, do you want me to be here? And he said, we're, you're very nice to have around. And I said, yeah, but do you want me to be here? And he said, no. <laughs> do you want to be here? And I said, absolutely not. And so that was one of the, I went home. My, and, that, and my feelings have evolved to, if you need me, there's an issue. I am happy to come and try and fix it. You know, if there's a script thing that needs fixing or an actor really needs to talk. And, you know, I'm happy to come. If you don't need me. I would like to go work on my new thing because my work is done. And uh, sometimes when an act, when the writer shows up, I feel like the actors look at us either like we're a word cop who's trying to, who's there to make sure they say every syllable mm -hmm. um, or that we're there and that presents a great opportunity to rewrite. And I don't want to rewrite. I've been working on it for several years. It's the way we like it. Uh, can you do that please? So I went to Kimmy a couple times briefly on the first few days. And then I went home and went back to work on whatever I was doing. Just to make sort of, you know, just to make sure Soderbergh knew what he was doing. Just to keep it, just to keep tabs yeah, on exactly. him. Yeah. Um, just uh, again, because it's exciting. And I think it sort of shows a lack of interest if you don't even show up, <laughs> um, even though they may all prefer that. Uh, but so I, I went and it is, a, you know, you look at the set and you if there's a read through, you listen to the read through and, you know, 
there are last minute changes that need to be made and it's easier to do that in person than far away. Um, so, uh, but I went and he's obviously so self-contained on a set. There's, you're not even sitting at the monitor chatting while he's waiting for it to be lit. He lights it and then he shoots it and then he moves on to light the next shot and then he shoots that. So you're really waving across the room. <laughs> Over the years, has your writing style changed in, in terms of uh, directions in the script? Have you ever directed on the page? I read so many conflicting pieces of advice for screenwriters. Some people say, yes, you should direct on the page. Some say you shouldn't. What, what do you do and has it changed over the years, especially as you've become a director yourself? Well, I try to, you, you must direct on the page because you're telling a story with pictures. Your, your job isn't just to write what people say. It's to write what the audience sees. Um, what you can't do is get caught. Um, you can't refer to the camera. You can say, we creep toward, that's perfectly valid, um, you know, but you don't want to do things that are going to put a director off. And if you refer overtly to the camera or try to write it, what look like shots, you know, one after another, that they will uh, scribble it out or rip the pages out or stop reading because that's their job. And I'm, I'm not interested in doing someone else's job. Um, I'm interested in creating in the reader's mind what the film looks like. It's screenwriting is just a dreadful or screenplays are dreadful documents <laughs> because they're really hard to read. They require a lot of work. Yeah. Rose, you know, just sort of flows over you and you're with the writer. The screenplays, they're trying to tell you what you would see and hear, but in print. And that's, that's difficult. So I would say my descriptions have become more terse as I've gotten older, because I think that helps the reader. Mm. Um, I'm always very happy when I can take a, two, three pages out of a draft just by cutting verbiage of descriptions, because then it, it, it's read more succinctly. Um, and you want a, a reader to keep going at roughly the pace that a movie would, would you know, flow past them if they were watching it. Mm. It has to be a real page, page turner, I guess, for people. Yeah, or at least not a page stopper, you know, like <laughs> it, 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 it has to, you don't want to get to a, you don't want to turn a page and see four paragraphs of 11 lines each with no dialogue in between. It's just depressing. <laughs> it's so much mental energy to get through that and picture it and say, okay, got it. Yeah. And you turn the page and there's another one. And you're like, nah, forget that. I don't like this movie. That's why George Lucas simply wrote, they fight. Yeah. Beautiful elegance. Or Kubrick famously wrote uh, in 2001, the spaceship docks. And, and it was in the middle of a page. There was nothing before it, nothing after. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and the last thing is, you mentioned prose. The last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about cold storage. And uh, were, even back then, there were, there were whispers and murmurs that it might be a film one day. What's what's the latest? What what are you working on next? Is is that part We're of the supposed to start shooting cold storage in July? Um, okay. If certain uh, deals go through, so hopefully an announcement soon about who would be in it and who's directing it and stuff like that. Um, and uh, supposed to start in July, and, but it's February, so uh, tick tick tick, everybody, let's <laughs> let's get this shit done. Um, and um, I have a new book uh, called Aurora coming out June seventh. 
or I believe June 9th in the UK. Amazing. Um, and uh, from HarperCollins. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's a, it, it's a science based thriller. The premise is science-y. It's a thriller that's really about these two communities uh, during a time of a global crisis, just what everybody wants to hear. But I swear this one's really fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I think it's very good. We'll see. Fantastic. Well, I wish you all the best with that. And when it comes out, you've, you've got to come back on the podcast, David. I will be here. You won't be able to stop. <laughs> Excellent. David Kep, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so that was David Kep and Kimmy, as I said, is out now on Sky, now and on digital download. All right, so let's talk about the movie news. So we recorded last week's podcast on Tuesday, expecting it to be loads of great movie news that maybe we would have to slide back into the virtual pod booth and discuss it in the interim. Kind of didn't happen, but has no. there been any great news in the last week or so? Well, Chris, Indiana Jones 4 has wrapped shooting. That's amazing. Well done. Well done to everybody. That is yeah. good. That would explain why James Mangold has announced his next film. He's going to do a Buster Keaton biopic. So he's obviously got a bit of mental space with the uh, with the shooting finished um, and has started turning his attention elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he's going to finish. Uh, I mean, yeah, which obviously, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> quite, he's quite right, it's right, fucking it. someone yeah. has a problem. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you, you edit this thing and I'll see you in six months. <laughs> I'll be there that for the seems unlikely mix. for him. Yeah, seems unlikely indeed. Frank Marshall put a picture up on Twitter with uh, with a baseball cap, which I think we all now want, which just simply says "Indie" in the indie logo, styly, uh, mm, looking yeah. very very cool. And he said, "That's a wrap." And of course, Frank is actually a cap. <laughs> I want. They sound similar. Indiana Jones now to wear this hat instead of the fedora throughout the whole of Indiana Jones 5. And I mocked this up. I photoshopped this, the indie cap, onto Harrison Ford's head. And now Did I just you? want a whole movie of this. Yes, it's on my Twitter. But in a sort of how-do-you-do-fellow-kids kind of way. Uh, no, so the cap's on front ways. It's not on backwards. I couldn't I couldn't Photoshop it, Photoshop it on backwards. My skills don't extend okay. that far. But imagine so if doesn't indie, have a skateboard through the whole film, just wears a cap that says indie indie on it this is a new era of indiana jones <laughs> uh, but we know nothing about this 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 movie there's lots of rumors about what it might be and what it might involve and it will be fascinating to see how it turns out i mm. think but yes buster keaton buster james keaton. michael buster yeah keaton. i think i mean look he has formed with biopics what with having done walk the line back in the day uh to considerable acclaim buster mm -hmm. keaton's a really interesting figure because he was this incredibly groundbreaking um silent comedy star of course uh if you haven't seen the general i insist you go and watch it right now just stop what you're doing stop listening to us go watch the general brendan gleason's um, best movie and the other one um oh. but and also it's not but fine I it's Paddington no. 2 because Paddington 2 is in Paddington 2 so therefore by extension Paddington 2 is anyone Erko. who's in Paddington 2 that is their best movie that's just the way it works well maybe we should do a Brendan Gleeson ranking actually that'd be a good thing anyway my point was um, Keaton's a really fascinating figure and, and kind of had a quite a sad life because his his comedy genius depended on having a certain degree of artistic freedom and and time to work stuff out and when he signed a deal with, I think it was MGM, if I remember correctly, he kind of lost a lot of that and, and kind of got cut down in the prime of his career a little bit. So I think there's a potentially very bittersweet, very interesting story to be told about him. And, um, and it would be lovely for more people to see his work. So, yeah, I'm excited for that. 
Imagine if, you know, there's been all the comparisons recently of, oh, Johnny Knoxville is like a modern day Buster Keaton. Imagine in like mm. 50 years time, it's like, somebody's going to play Johnny Knoxville in the Johnny Knoxville <laughs> biopic. What a weird world that's going to be in the future. And then, yeah. and then we'd be going, there's no modern actor who has what it takes to capture the nuances of Johnny Knoxville. No one can get kicked in the nuts like Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who's gonna play Johnny Knoxville? Haley Joel Osment the third? What are you kidding me? Also, would they do their own stunts? I mean, this the inquiring minds need to know. Speaking of biopics, yeah. though, uh, Evan Rachel mm. Wood has been cast as Madonna in the <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe Weird Al biopic, which is still a thing I can't believe is real. Obviously, you yep. mentioned the picture that came out last week, which literally was just Daniel Radcliffe in a curly wig holding an accordion, which, I mean, I don't know what else I expected from my first look at the Weird Al Yankovic movie, but now we have a picture, we have an image of Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna, looking very Madonna-y, looking like 80s Madonna. Mm. It seems like great casting. Yeah, she looks, I mean, that's, that's it, isn't it? She looks like Madonna, so well done, everybody. And she can sing. She can she sing. She can sing. She did that song at the start of Frozen 2. She probably has done other bits of singing. I do not know. But she can sing. And Madonna is trying to make a biopic as well. So, mm. you know, she's uh, she's casting for people uh, to play the young Madonna Louise. Barry Kjogan. I'm, I'm intrigued by your casting choice there, James. Do tell yeah, us more. I think Shifty Barry can play pretty much anything he wants. Shifty Barry. Sh- yeah, Shifty Barry him. can just play different <laughs> variations of Shifty Barry. This is my issue. He's always Shifty Barry. In Dunkirk, he was Shifty Barry. In Eternals, he was Shifty Barry. In Killing of a Sacred Deer, he was the shiftiest Barry ever. Druig sucks. Druig sucks. Druig is great. But yeah, he, he is Shifty. I mean, not as a person. He's a delightful human, but, you know, his on-screen presence is, is Shifty. Yeah. I mean, his name is Shifty Barry, Helen. Like, it's kind of telegraph. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, I didn't realise he changed his name. I apologise yes, for missing he that he is now memo. Shifty Barry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to yeah. break it to you like this. Uh, all right. Some interesting news as well, that mm. uh, the Netflix Marvel shows are going to be coming to Disney Plus very, very soon in the next couple of weeks, like March 16th. Mummy, mummy, why is Kingpin slamming that man's head in the car door? <laughs> He embarrassed him in front of Vanessa. <laughs> Vanessa! <laughs> oh, God. It's just years of therapy and a lot of kids' future, I fear. Yeah, so it's Daredevil, it's uh, Luke Cage, it's Jessica Jones, it's The Defenders, it's The Punisher, it is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and it is all those shows and no other show. Uh, I don't think I've left any of the shows out from that, from that list. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that? I certainly can't think of a I single other one. I don't think of any one. omission, Chris. I think you've covered all of them perfectly. You have them okay. all in your hand there. In your, in your glowy, hands. glowy yeah. hands. Disney yeah. have yeah. got hold of these properties in their iron fist. And wait, that yes. rings a bell. Is there something? Is it because no, it sounds anyway. like Iron Man? Mm. Sounds like Iron Man. I that's love it. Iron Man. Yeah, that's probably it. That's it. That's what it is. Well, that's, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's handy for people with a sense of neatness because, you know, with Charlie Cox turning up in things. You know, people can look him up. Are we still uh, tiptoeing around Daredevil? that? Are we I still tiptoeing? Probably not, but I guess I am. we are. Yeah. Um, you know, people can look him up in Daredevil as well, so that's good. I mean, since Charlie Cox has started showing up in things, as Helen said, I have been doing a Daredevil rewatch and have revisited the first two seasons. Really enjoyed going back to them, and then. 
two days or a day before all those shows left Netflix, I'd finished season two of Daredevil and I was like, <laughs> I actually kind of feel like watching the Defenders series. I never watched the Defenders when it came out. I watched the Daredevil series. I watched the first season of Jessica Jones, which is amazing. I'm really excited to revisit that when that comes on to Disney+. Plus. But I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to watch The Defenders. I got really into it. And I'm four episodes into The Defenders and now it's gone. And I'm having to wait two weeks. Oh, no. Um, but oh. I, I feel foolish for finally starting to get back into those shows just as they got yanked from Netflix. Meanwhile, they were mm. sitting there for years and years. And I was like, meh. Yeah, then yeah. Ne- <laughs> Netflix Marvel stuff or something there. And actually revisiting it, the good stuff is so good. Even that like slightly wobbly season two of Daredevil, when you binge them, it's it, there's there's a lot of good stuff in there, and I remember season three of Daredevil in particular, which I think quite a few people didn't watch because they'd kind of given up yeah, on the whole thing yeah, by right. then. Mm. My recollection of it is that the third season of Daredevil is the best one. I had so much great stuff. Mm, in I don't it. know if it's the best one, but because he spends far too much time in the basement of a church at the beginning. Mm. But uh, but generally speaking, it's but a it return to form. Up. Like yeah. yeah, two's a wobble, but but mm. three is a return to form. But it's you know it's it's going to be a shock to some people, I think, when those particular titles arrive on Disney Plus. But of course, we've already got Pam and Tommy, so it's not the first time Cox <laughs> will be seen on Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a bigger deal oh, in boy. the US though, because of Star over here. We've had the like parental controls thing as part of Disney Plus for a long time, whereas in the US they've still mostly got. Hulu for all of the non-Disney mm-hmm. stuff that comes yeah. under the Disney banner. Whereas I believe in the US, these shows are going literally on Disney Plus, not to Hulu. Um, so the parental, the parental controls thing is a, a new thing for American audiences. Yes. Set parental controls to block Iron Fist completely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It'd be amazing if you could do that. You could just watch the Defenders and just have like a sort of a shimmery haze <laughs> over Iron Fist no. in every scene he's in. This is my first time actually watching bits of the Iron Fist stuff and his scenes are the worst. It's really great mm-hmm. seeing Jessica Henwick doing something pre-Matrix Resurrections. She's great in that film and she's really good in those scenes but it's like oh yeah it's a jessica jones scene hey it's a daredevil scene oh look there's luke cage doing his cool thing and then you go oh, oh it's an iron fist scene oh he's gonna do the this blowy guy. hand oh he's oh, gonna be sulking Lord. on his plane <laughs> boo I, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily finn jones's fault no i don't i don't think no. it was his fault i think that was just it's, it's not mike Coulter's fault that that luke cage gets incredibly boring as well it's just the thing that happens mm. when you insist on doing 13 episodes yeah this should have been eight rupert friend everyone loves a bit of rupert friend don't they but yes. sadly rupert friend is going to be rupert foe because he has just signed on to be the baddie in a movie i suspect i may be the only person in this quartet who's <laughs> excited about this Zack snyder's new movie rebel moon which is basically the movie that he pitched as a Star War, and then Star War went, no. Thanks, Zack Snyder, but no. So he went, all right, I'm going to do it myself anyway. Haha, up yours. Uh, and so it's basically Battle Beyond the Stars in space, as far as I could tell. So Sophia Patella <laughs> is going to be a young woman with a mysterious past who is who has to seek out warriors from neighboring planets to help her people take a stand against a tyrannical Regent Balisarius. And I think that Rupert Friend is going to be Rupert Foe and play Regent Balisarius. Showrunner of Jag, among other things. <laughs> wow, that's... that's... <laughs> 
Regent P. Regent P. Belisarius. I was hoping that you would be the only one who said that. No, I, I, I got it. I just wished oh. I hadn't. Yes. Oh my word, that's good stuff. Good stuff. <sighs> I know Star Wars is a magpie that steals liberally from Kurosawa and all sorts of things, but this sounds like a Mandalorian episode. This sounds. This is what happens in every How episode of Mando. Dare you? There's a problem on a planet, you? and then they're like, Ah, Mando, we recruit you to help us take down the thing, but then we betray you. Oh, and then Baby Yoda ate a cookie. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Surprising yet inevitable betrayal. Look, maybe there will be a Baby Yoda of <gasps> sorts in this Zack Snyder film. He does, look, he has an incredible eye. I really hope that this is awesome. He's got and- two eyes. I've seen them. <sighs> And um, you know, I would, I would like to l- genuinely and truly love one of his films again. It's been a while. That's all. Speaking of Rupert Foe, has anyone seen that video that's been doing the rounds recently of Willem Dafoe pronouncing his own name? A young Willem Dafoe, and uh, it, I'll be honest, it was on TikTok, and it was someone saying, brought up a picture of Willem Dafoe and say, say this guy's name. I was like, well, Willem Dafoe. And then it cuts to a young Willem Dafoe introducing himself as William Dafoe. And it blew my mind. Hmm. Is he trolling, do you think? I don't know. He he must have been, what, like 20 or something in this video? He was was young, he had long hair, and he introduces himself in a lineup of people and he says, hi, I'm William Dafoe. Isn't that wild? I I don't really know what to do with this information. (laughs) I didn't either. That's why I'm sharing it with you guys. He he came into the office and and I don't remember if we called him by name or if he introduced himself by his full name. He probably didn't. But now I'm worried that we've misnamed him right? to his face. Oh no. He is he is William. So his his first name is William. We should we should absolutely stress that. I, that is correct. He's right about that. Uh, I'm also <laughs> going to go with uh, he's right about the pronunciation, but what I think has probably happened is over the years, people have just started saying Dafo, and, and he's, he's just probably been like, gone, This happens to my wife an awful lot. She gets Fola a lot instead of Fola. And, you know, more often than not, we'll correct people, but it just doesn't get through. It doesn't get through to people. So people just go with what they feel it is. Mm. Um, shouldn't be the case, but there you go. I am now going to call him William Dafo from now on. If any so of us in this squad booth interview Willem Dafoe, we need to ask him about William Dafoe. William Dafoe. Ariana DeBose, a fresh winner of a SAG Award for Best Supporting Actress for the amazing West Side Story, don't you even start with me, James, um, is joining Craven the Hunter, reportedly as Calypso. Who's Calypso, Helen? Calypso, I'm so glad you asked. Now, in the comics, she is a voodoo priestess um, who has dabbled in uh, zombie rising as well as mind control and so on. We're not, I'm not sure that they're going to do all of her comic background on screen, what with most of it being, you know, incredibly it, offensive. It feels problematic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she is quite often connected with Craven the Hunter. She has been a girlfriend of his in the past. So there is a link there. There is a relationship there to be explored potentially. But I would hope that they're going to do some significant rewriting to that character. Yes. This is Craven the Hunter, uh, which Aaron Taylor Johnson will play Craven the Hunter. And who is a Spider-Man villain, of course. He's one of the many Spider-Man villains and anti-heroes whom Sony are basing their spump around. Uh, This is going to be directed by JC Chandor. This is the film, this is the non-Spider-Man Spider-Man movie that I'm most excited about because JC Chandor is a a really good director. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson is a really good actor. We love Ariana DeBose. 
this could be, dare I say, ah, uh, good. Do you remember when the first Venom was being cast and they kept casting good person after good person and we were like, there's got to be a reason for Whoa, it. Whoa, Riz Ahmed, Jenny Slate, saying. Tom Hardy, wow, Michelle Williams, all the people. And then... Exactly. I'm just, I'm just mentioning that. No reason. Just came to my mind. This is the thing. Ariana DeBose is amazing. She's incredible in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. She's mind-blowingly good. And I want big things for her. I want big blockbustery roles for her if that's the way she wants to go. But Spunk? Spunk? Yeah, I just, it's a risk, isn't it? But she's she probably going to win the Oscar, don't you think? And so this would mean her first project post-Oscar oh. would be Craven the Hunter. Maybe there's a really quick little indie she did in between. By the way, uh, I should make clear to people that um, West Side Story is now on Disney+, Plus. so if you have that service, you can watch it right now. I would watch both Venoms back-to-back before I would rewatch West Why? Side Story. That is, I've literally that is just so told wrong. you to shh on this. <laughs> well, I couldn't, I couldn't hear you when you were shushing me, Helen, because I was looking at some exciting other breaking news, which is I have solved the Defoe-Defoe dilemma. He's done an interview with Conan O'Brien in 2019, and he basically said half his family pronounce it Defoe, and half his family pronounce it Defoe. And before he was an actor, he went with Defoe. When he became an actor, he changed it for simple reasons that when he would go to the dentist, they'd say, uh, he said Defoe, and they would go, oh, hi, Dave, come in. And they think it was Dave Foe. That that was his name, and he thought Defoe sounded better, so he switched to the other side of the family's pronunciation. And when he became an actor, he became Defoe. That is a lame fucking excuse. When I say Helena Hara, people hear Helena, Helena like Hara is a name. Yes, Helena Hara. Helena Hara. You had real problems at Galactic Star Cruiser when you were checking in for stuff. Yeah, the apostrophe oh, was the just apostrophe. throwing them. He's like, guys, it's a fucking science fiction ship. Should you not be used to apostrophes <laughs> right? randomly in the middle of names? Come on, people. Is that a Star Wars thing? Do many people have st- apostrophes just run around Twi'leks in their names? Do, the names? Twi'leks do. Twi'leks, yeah. true. Even though they pronounced yeah. it Twi'lek on the Star Cruiser. They did. That was an I think you'll find moment. There were a couple of mistakes, but we <laughs> were, were very, few, very I think you'll gracious. find moments. Yes. Yeah. There were a couple of Defo Defo moments, definitely, during the Star Cruiser experience. Um, Kira from Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah. Key apostrophe yes. ra. There you go. Yes, absolutely. Uh all right, listen, we were kind of speaking about Aaron Taylor-Johnson and uh, in interest of a segue, we should also talk about Aaron Taylor-Johnson again because he is in the trailer for Bullet Train, woo, woo. which is David Leach's new movie, which stars Brad Pitt and a coterie of amazing supporting actors in an action movie set entirely on a Shinkansen, which is a the bullet train, uh, the Japanese bullet train, which uh, if anyone, has anyone here been on one? I've been on, I've, no, I've had the, the experience. It's a wonderful thing to be on, an incredible uh, a technological achievement if you've never been on one. They, they go at speeds if I think up to 300 miles an hour, they're incredible things. Uh, anyway, so this is an action movie set on a bullet train based, I think, on a graphic novel, but I may be wrong on that. It is almost certainly a project that began with the name first and then <laughs> you fill in the blanks afterwards. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the trailer, I was going to avoid the trailer because I was f- worried that it might be filled with spoilers and it kind of is, but also I'm glad I watched it now because it, it makes the film look very different from what I expected it to be. Mm. I thought it was going to be a very, very grim, atomic blonde style movie, um, but it's not. It seems to be an absolute laugh riot. It looks really fun. The thing that delighted me most about this is that it's uh, anchored primarily by Brad Pitt, who mm. is just still in an amazing place at the moment. It's just, it feels like, especially in a post Once Upon a Time in Hollywood land, he is really cutting loose. And in this film, he's getting to play 
yes, an action hero, but he's very goofy and kind of affable. He's cracking jokes. And seeing him in that mode in this kind of big, splashy, colourful, super stylish blockbuster looks, it just looks like an absolute blast, let alone when you Mm. add in all the other amazing people who are also in this cast. Yeah, 100%. I'm super here for goofy assassin Brad Pitt. I just think it's going to be delightful. And and the trailer looks really really good fun. I'm yeah, I'm super hyped. I was I was looking forward to this. I thought it would be good. I thought there would be cool action scenes aboard a train. I didn't think it would be quite this kind of gonzo and funny and weird. And I'm yeah, here for it. Yeah, so we also have the likes of uh Hiroyuki Sanada. We have uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, of course, who's rocking some sort of interesting mullet-moustache combo and, a, and a, mm. obviously a British accent. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, Andrew Koji, Joey King, Sazzy Beats, they're all in this trailer. Uh, I think we see and hear Sandra Bullock, we see her, her mouth and we hear her, her voice, but we don't see her. She mm. seems to be someone who recruits these people and puts them on the bullet train. Uh, she replaced Lady Gaga. Uh, very late in the day. So yeah, this looks this looks extremely fun. I know, that's my one thing. I, as amazing as this looks and all the great people who are in it, knowing that for a time Lady Gaga was also going to be in this and that now she's not, that is that can't help but be slightly disappointing. Oh, come on. Sandra Bullock is no disrespect to Sandra Bullock, a- but it, it, again, in this kind of film, in this kind of world, to see Lady Gaga in that mix would have been pretty special. Well, speaking of worlds in which you want to see good people, I mean... There was a new trailer for Fantastic Beasts, whatever it's called. Um, so I, I have thoughts. That's exciting. I have thoughts. I have feelings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah. I don't know what this series is. Does this series know what this series is? I no. Straight up, there are things in this trailer that to me, regardless of everything else going on with this franchise, that look exciting, that look like there's maybe more to be excited about than in... The last one, which was not great. Um, Mads Mikkelsen as Grindelwald is such an upgrade. There, There is no mm-hmm. way to say how much of an upgrade that is. Um, there is. There are fantastic beasts doing beasty things. There are lots of wizarding duels. There is a sense of greater escalation when the last one really felt like it was treading water. There is the big whacking cliffhanger from the last film that I am very intrigued to see how they resolve that. But it is so... Remind us what that was. (laughs) I'm very intrigued to see if I can remember what it was. Uh, So spoilers for Fantastic Beasts 2, which, what, was three years ago at this point? Uh, Is that all? Ezra Miller character, uh, Credence Barebone, the obscurial uh, who was brought up by the horrible anti-witch lady played by Samantha Morton. Uh, It turned out he was the, the, the creature thing that was destroying New York because he's actually magic and... It was bursting out of him and causing all these destructive things because he wasn't allowed to do anything with it. Uh, He was recruited by Grindelwald, and Grindelwald revealed to him at the end of the last film, your actual surname is Dumbledore. Your identity is Aurelius Dumbledore, which that is a name we've not heard in any Harry Potter books. We have an idea of what Dumbledore's family tree is, which includes his brother Aberforth, who is in... Deathly Hallows, yeah, and who Hines. is yep. now in this one, played by a different actor. Uh, he had a sister called Ariana Dumbledore, who it wasn't named this in the books, but sounds like she was an obscurial too. She had mm. dangerous magic stuff going on that kind of burst out of her. She died in a duel, or there was a duel between Albus and Aberforth, and she died, whatever. 
but we've never heard of Aurelius Dumbledore. So who the hell is Aurelius Dumbledore? Is that actually who Ezra Miller's character is? How does that fit into the family tree? How does that relate to anything else? That is what we've been kind of asking for the last few years. So there is big stuff to consider for this one. But the name of this film is Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which connects to all of that. Would make sense for that, yeah. Before I saw this new trailer, I saw the new poster they put out. And the most significant thing on that poster is that front and centre with the biggest face is Jude Law. This does not seem to be particularly a Newt Scamander movie. This is no. a Dumbledore movie. Newt Scamander is still fairly prominent on the poster, but he's off to the left. His face is smaller than Dumbledore's face. The entire kind of initial quartet that was set up in that first film, which I still think is really charming and I love that set of characters, was uh, Newt, was uh, Jacob Kowalski, the muggle baker who uh, is played by Dan Fogler. Then you had Alison Sudol as Queenie Goldstein, again, a really charming character in the first one, but they fucked that character arc in the second one so badly. They did a real hodgepodge job of, of... Basically, by the end of Fantastic Beasts 2, again, spoilers for this three-year-old film, she turned to the dark side. She turned to Grindelwald's side for reasons that just don't feel believable whatsoever. No reasons. She is in one shot of this trailer, and that is it. And it's the same shot we saw of her in the previous trailer. Uh, And then the other character from that central four is Catherine Waterston's Tina Goldstein, who was such a major part of that first film, still a really prominent part of the second film as well. She is in the cast list. She is in the official Warner Brothers cast list for this movie. But last week we got a load of character posters and she is not in a single one of them. She doesn't have her own character poster when, much as I love him, the Niffler, now known to be named Teddy, has his own poster, as does the Bowtruckle, Pickett. Again, I love him, but those two have posters and and Catherine Waterston doesn't. She's not in a single shot from either trailer and she's not on the kind of main poster with all the different faces for this one either. Mm. So... There's something happening there. Maybe she gets killed in the first five minutes. But we know that she marries Newt Scamander. That's part of the history. That's part of the stuff we already know this is leading towards. So it's strange. It's it's just such a messed up series because the, the end of both the previous films essentially left us in more or less the same place with um, Newt and friends going, right, well, I guess we're going to have to fight Grindelwald. And and then nothing happens, you know, and it, it's been two films now. It feels like our main plot hasn't gotten going. The first film, he was just chasing magical beasts all over New York when the real problem isn't any of them. The second film, he's faffing about all over Paris and not dealing with the real problems there either. So I'm just like, how long are we going to have the main thrust of this entire series going on in the background while Newt just faffs about? Oh, anyway, I mean, it's getting annoying. Dumbledore centric prequel. Start with Dumbledore, right? Start, right. Just, just do that. Forget the yeah. Fantastic Beast thing. The thing is, Jude Law is great. Jude Law is great in that role. He was one of the best things about the last film. It's not inherently a problem that he is is getting more to do in this one. It's just, it's just weird. Everything about this is weird. There is an entire identity crisis happening with that entire franchise at the moment, and that seems to be coming through quite a lot in in this film. And how different it seems to be from what we've had before. But every day is Christmas Eve, so maybe it'll be great. I can't not be excited about it. I can't, there's, I can't not be excited about the next thing in the wizarding world. It's, it's just ingrained in me. Um, but I, I wish I didn't have so many complicated feelings about everything happening in that world at the moment. I'm sure a lot of people maybe feel the same way as I do. 
Anyway, time now for our second guest. That's enough movie news for one week. Uh, time now for our second guest. And it's Paul Dano. It is Paul Dano. Not Dano. Dano. He is a fantastic actor. He's got an incredible body of work behind him. The likes of There Will Be Blood and Swiss Army Man, of course, and Love and Mercy, 12 Years a Slave, Looper, Ruby Sparks, Taking Woodstock, Where the Wild Things Are, Night and Day, Little Miss Sunshine, Wowzers. And he's very malleable, Paul Dano. He could be a good guy or a bad guy. He could be lovable. He could be creepy. And in this week's The Batman, he is very, very creepy as the first big screen Riddler since Jim Carrey's version of the character in Batman Forever back in 1995. This is a very different take on the Riddler in a very different-ish take on the Batman from director Matt Reeves. Uh, Paul Dano spoke to us on Zoom last week. Ben was leading this interview for the podcast. Uh, I jumped in every now and again because I was pressing the buttons and tweaking the knobs. So here we go. Ben and a little bit of me talking to Paul Dano about a great many things. Do please enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by Paul Dano, the Riddler himself. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Happy to, to be here in London, finally getting to share this film. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long journey here. So you're in London at the moment. How long have you been here? I've uh, been here most of the week. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a premiere over at the BFI IMAX the other night, which oh, is amazing. a beautiful theater. I uh, watched the first 15 minutes from the back and it, was just, uh, it, was, it looks and sounds so good. Um, and uh, we're heading back to New York next week to do a premiere there. And then, then we're finally, uh, you know, in the home stretch. Fantastic. And you say, watch the opening 15 minutes, which you get a big scene in the opening 15 minutes, which I saw the film last night and it was fantastic, had a brilliant time. But that big scene got a big reaction. There were shocks, there were gasps, uh, people were losing their minds. What was it like getting to see that scene uh, with people in a big cinema like that? Oh, cool. Good. Well, that was actually the first scene I filmed as well, uh, which which we shot as sort of two... Um, uh, pre-pro days, you know, they, they snuck it in before the first day of principal photography. And, it, right. and uh, uh, then the first scene they actually shot in principal photography, I believe, was when uh, Batman and Gordon enter that crime scene, which is probably like the third sequence in the film. Um, man, what Matt's done at the outset of this film, right? The title, the music, that opening shot, uh, you, you know, you're in for something else. Um, and it's so immediately immersive and the pace. And I find, I found that opening scene really fun to watch with the audience, but that second sequence as well with Batman's voiceover going through the city, what Matt's done with, and, and, and our production designer, James Chinlin and Greg Frazier, our DP Gotham is just so well realized and mm-hmm. so immersive uh like that when you see the guy spray painting broke on city hall and that's reveal it's just oh my the images are so um powerful so i wish i'd stayed for the rest of the screening i hope i get to go see it soon enough with just a totally fan-based audience because i think it i think it will be a thrill you say you're in london and i want to ask you about something uh are you aware there is a coffee chain here called cafe nero i don't know if that exists in other parts of the world but there is a uk coffee chain cafe nero that currently has a batman promotion and one of the drinks as part of that promotion is a riddler hot chocolate have you ever had a tie-in drink before for a film that you've done no and i've not had this 
special beverage that you're talking about. Nobody's <laughs> handed me one yet. I'm impressed that they were able to get the question mark in there. That was actually one of my favorite nights of filming. I mean, it's kind of a piece of it's in the trailer, so I think it's okay to talk about. Sure. But there's a uh, that's a really uh, that is a scene where I went. We were filming on this back lot that was built up at Leavesden here. Um, right. An L train the diner, the club, an extraordinary set. I mean, it, it was just, and it's night shoots, it's raining and seeing that coffee cup and seeing Batman out the window. And for that particular moment in the film that I'm talking about, that was just one of those nights that I, I won't forget. And I was mm. okay. I'm, 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 we're making a Batman movie. <laughs> You're in it. You're in the middle of it. Well, the, um, the flavor of that Riddler hot chocolate is an ungodly combination, I believe, of lemon, lime, and cinnamon. I don't know what that tastes like in a hot chocolate. Is that how you imagine the taste of your Riddler in an abstract sense? Wow. Okay. Well, let's see if we can parse this out. Lime is green. Maybe they were mm -hmm. going, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, the, 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 the taste of the Riddler. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, he's a pretty, pretty interesting character. So I'm not sure I would want to drink a beverage coming from him. Paul, you must have had people offer you all kinds of milkshakes. That must be something that happens to you on, on the regular. Well, that's true. And, and, and it's really disappointing for them because I am lactose intolerant. So I always <laughs> have to give a, oh, that's so, thank you. That's so kind. And I give it to a friend. Uh, yes, uh, I suppose now I'll be receiving two beverages um, at the airport bar. Yeah. <laughs> so you need one more now for your trilogy, the, the Paul Dano beverage trilogy. You know, if there was like a really fine wine or a really nice classic cocktail well i think i think i could get away from these you know um milkshake coffee beverages <laughs> slightly darker drinks would you would you ally that to any of your your movies is there a little miss sunshine cocktail in there is there a, a love of mercy a movie I, I adore is there a love of mercy cocktail in there little miss sunshine would have to be some kind of uh yeah virgin uh yeah shirley temple or something uh <laughs> Love and mercy. Okay, yeah. Now we're talking. Now we can get a little, little psychedelic or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. We were talking there about your incarnation of the Riddler, which is very different from any I've seen in any of the Batman movie. Um, what were the conversations that you had with the director Matt Reeves about this version of the Riddler? Um, how did he pitch it to you, and did your understanding of him kind of evolve through the film, or was it always a very, very set version of that character? Well, Matt's script was incredibly fully realized. And frankly, I was surprised and, and sort of blown away by it. I remember turning to my wife after reading and saying, like, I think this is really good. Like, you know, like it, I felt really uh, fortunate that I might get the chance to do one of these types of films that I might love myself. Um, and he had a sort of, I think, uh, ingenious vision for this character. Um, and the first conversation that him and I had was about hero and villain and the two sides of trauma and how Batman himself is born of trauma right through his parents' death. And, mm. and that was sort of the key, like emotional seed from which everything else grew. So there were a lot of other conversations, research in a bunch of different directions. You kind of walk down every path you can to see if you can un 
unturn one nugget for yourself that gives you some idea for a scene or for the costume or for whatever. But it all kind of circles back to the opportunity that Matt was giving us, which was to make an immersive action spectacle that also felt like highly personal and emotional and psychological. And the, I mean, you, you know, seeing the film again the other night, just part of it even, just even in the film language, the way he's putting this hero and villain together through different techniques. And, you know, I won't, I won't say, cause I don't know when this airs, but he's the, 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 the morality in the film is really interesting, right? Because um, most uh, superhero films, it's just, it's good versus evil. It's probably pretty black and white. And also the hero is always like protecting the status quo, but that's challenged here. And the hero is challenged through that as well in a really interesting way. So there was always a lot to talk about. And Matt was, and, and, and I'm like this as well, always searching for how can we take it one step deeper, you know, make it one, one bit richer. And so he was just like an incredible collaborator in sort of realizing what was an amazing foundation already on the page. When you're reading the script for the first time, the Riddler is the first character we we meet, essentially. He's the first character whose eyes we see through. And that opening, I know Matt's talked about the influence of, of 1970s crime movies. That that felt influenced by Dirty Harry to me, the Scorpio killer in, in that movie. It Was that something that you, you and he talked about in terms of influences, in terms of characters that, that might inspire the Riddler in some way? Yeah, sure. I mean, Matt brought up the Zodiac Killer, which he's talked about. Um, and, and, and frankly, that only took me so far. I think it might have resonated with him even more than it did me. And I think that's partially because I understood you, you, the, 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 the more maybe real that this character was, potentially the more scary it, that the whole thing actually is. So that was a really interesting goal for a, quote, villain, right? Because sometimes they're, they're so uh, outsized, it's easier to step away from because it mm. is imaginary And this. Um, so bringing a real life example, like the Zodiac Killer, rather than a filmic one, you know, was really telling. But also this is the Riddler and it's Gotham. There's like a huge archetypal energy at work and a huge history. So you also want it to have that layer as well, right? Not just it's not just reality. You know, there's the realism gets thrown around a lot in art and in film. And I don't even know what it means. You know, you're all, you're also looking for the essence of the thing, you know, not just, it's not just the reality. You, you know, you have a handful of scenes and you're trying to get to the essence of, of, of the character and the moment. Um, and so, yes, Matt had filmic influences. You can see, I think, painterly things in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, he had music written in, you know, something in the way by Nirvana was written into the script. Um, the Aaron Copeland music cue was written into the script, which is sort of an ironic, like, so right away you're getting those two things in conversation with each other. They're very different pieces and they're really telling you something about these characters and, 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 and the Riddler because he's the one who uses that Aaron Copeland piece in a sort of ironic way. The lyrics to that Nirvana song even, and Matt had Michael G. Kino's score in pre-production. So you know, the, the filmic rep, all that stuff again goes into the, the pot, but it's got to circle back to sort of the center of who that person was, is who they were before the mask and who, what the mask now allows them to become. There are so many iconic 
performances associated with comic book movies, but especially villains in Batman films. I guess a lot of that comes back to the Joker, but you think of, of Heath Ledger, you think of Joaquin Phoenix, you think of Tom, uh, Tom Nicholson. What are the, what are your, Jack Nicholson, sorry. What are your, Tom what Hardy. Tom Nicholson's great in Batman, by the way. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. What were your feelings about taking on a character like the Riddler in a film like this, where sometimes those roles can become a defining role for a performer? That can be the role that you're associated with. How are you feeling about that and about heading into a, a kind of blockbuster production, even if maybe what Matt Reeves does isn't typical blockbuster stuff? Well, I just thought, what would Tom Nicholson do? <laughs> right. Uh, Yes, it's fine. I mean, Jim Carrey and Jack Nicholson were probably my two first like favorite actors. uh, Totally real. Like when I was young, Jim Carrey and then Jack Nicholson. So it's funny that they're also in the, you know, Batman history. Um, Yeah, those those actors are incredible. The performances are incredible again. And I'd be curious, actually, what you guys think, because, you know, you study this stuff for a living. But there is something in the Batman lore in Batman himself and in Gotham that allows for villains that really resonate. And I do think for slightly different reasons, there, there are always another side of the coin from the hero himself. Um, but uh, yeah, what, 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 what do you, what, what do you think that is when, when you watch, when you think about all those actors doing that, why? Cause I think I don't, I can't think of any other cinematic world where those villains are so, I mean, I think Voldemort's actually like an amazing, you, mm. you, you know, figure, of course, and Darth Vader, but like, why is that? And yeah, what do you guys think? I mean, I guess without getting too much into spoilers and, and dancing around things a bit, I think there is an element of bringing a a heightened mythical quality, but being able to combine that with something that feels very real. Uh, yeah, specifically to avoid spoilers for this film, it goes to certain places that feel very real right now in the final acts, especially concerning your character. But at the same time, it is playing in this heightened realm, in this heightened place. Uh, so having an actor being able to maybe play into that slightly heightened register, but in a way that feels connected to our reality, um, for me, that's maybe maybe what that combination is. Well, that, that was definitely the goal. So that's great. I mean, and, and I think we, we even talked about that before. It's like this, the Zodiac Killer, but then there's this archetypal energy at work and you have to kind of synthesize mm-hmm. that all together. Uh, and again, the opportunity here to differentiate, you know, not to think, not that I was thinking much about the other villains, but of course, those are performances that, that you, you, you know, you, you, uh, that are indelible in my mind too. Right. And so, okay, how is this, how is this just, how can I just let this be its own thing? Right. And not, uh, be in the shadow of anything. And I think the contact that Matt was making with reality whether it was through a real life serial killer or through uh he wrote this five years ago but through what he was feeling in the world this sort of energy out there um in the culture and how that's reflected in gotham uh and i think that ultimately the most terrifying thing in this film is potentially that contact with reality for 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 this villain Mm. I mean, if you look at the filmmakers that you've worked with over your career, it's an, a truly insane list. Bong Joon-ho, Paul Thomas Anderson, Kelly Reichardt, The Daniels, my God, Swiss Army Man, yeah. uh, Denny Villeneuve, Ryan Johnson, Steve McQueen, Paolo Sorrentino. Now you've added Matt Reeves to the list. And if we look at what's coming next for you, a certain Steven Spielberg 
on the Fablemans, which, as far as we know, is is a sort of fictionalized version of of Spielberg's own upbringing, and you're playing a father figure. What what can you tell us about that role and about your experience of having worked with Spielberg over these last couple of months? I believe I heard Stephen on the Empire Pod once. Did I not? You did indeed. You yeah. did. Yeah. 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 I listened to uh, his interview when uh, him and I were were meeting, probably about that. <laughs> I think I'm still, frankly, processing. It might take me years that somebody like Stephen asked me to play a version of his father. Uh, it is a, a somewhat autobiographical film. Um, uh, Stephen and Tony Kushner wrote it together. Um, and and the, the films that Stephen's accredited writer on are some of my very favorites of his. So that was even just, I remember page one of the script, seeing his name there as a writer, along with Tony Kushner, who I think is one of the greatest writers um, there is. Uh, uh, yeah, um, it was a really special experience. Um, it's a little early to talk about, but... Um, yeah, I think I will cherish that one for some time. Yeah. Have you ever played a character before where it's so closely aligned to the filmmaker's own life and experiences? I've had a couple close calls, so to speak, where there's some intimate or personal element. I don't think anything, this was a truly singular experience in terms of what was sort of at stake for all of us because of how much we love and admire Stephen and him sort of going back to his roots in some way. Fantastic. Well, we can't wait to see it when it when it arrives many months down the line. But for now, the Batman is astonishing. You're fantastic in it. Congratulations on the film. And thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely yeah, to guys, you. Go find the biggest, best screen you can because it's it's uh the 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 Batman's worth it. <laughs> and let us know if you find that Riddler hot chocolate. Cafe Nero, there's, they're around London. They're everywhere. They couldn't have done like a Riddler absinthe or something more. You know. <laughs> no, no, it's in the film. We got to do the, the question mark uh, cocoa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, do, do you think anybody thinks that that's hot chocolate? I mean, it's clearly a cappuccino, guys. Yeah, yeah it has to be. I mean, there's, there's, it's got the, the question mark is the chocolate sprinkles. The best yeah. bit. Yeah. I would love to see a, a, a mass coffee chain sell absinthe uh, as part of their tie-in. <laughs> that would be one hell of a thing. Uh, amazing. Paul Dano, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank yeah. you. Cheers. Okay. So that was Paul Dano. And now it is time for the reviews section of the show. And there's only one place to start, really. It's the big film that's out this week. It is The Batman, Matt Reeves' take on Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. The Caped Crusader, a.k.a. The Dark Knight. And you think, oh, it's actually only been five minutes since we had a Batman movie. It's actually been 10 years since we had a dedicated Batman movie, which was The Dark Knight Rises back in 2012. And yes, we have had Ben Affleck uh, as as Batman in Batman vs. Superman, colon, Dawn of Justice and Justice League since then. And we've always had Will Arnett as Lego Batman, but not an actual dedicated Batman movie. So it has been has been a little while. Is it different enough to justify its existence? And is it any good? Benjamin? Different enough? Sort of. Mostly, yeah. Any good? <laughs> Big yeah. Very good. Um, the thing that stressed me out was the other day I realised, I was like, oh, it's, it's, I mean, it's not been that long since Batman Begins. The distance between Batman Begins and the Batman is longer than the distance between Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Begins. What is that? Is yeah. it? 
Burton's Batman was 89. Batman Begins was 2005, so that's 16 years. 2005 to 2022, 17 years. <gasps> that's true. Oh, I feel so yeah. old. Wild, isn't it? We are, James. Uh, so yeah, even though it feels like we've recently had a kind of beginning-ish of Batman movie, this is Matt Reeves's sort of ground-up take. It is not a Batman year one. It is a Batman year two we have Robert Pattinson donning the bat suit this time, uh, playing a bit of Bruce Wayne, mostly Batman himself, uh, getting pulled into basically a serial killer mystery. You have Paul Dano as the Riddler going around town, uh, not in a spandex cat suit, uh, but in a horrible kind of boiler suit thing, uh, murdering people, straight up murdering people and leaving clues to the Batman. Uh, so we have Pattinson's are bats trying to solve the crime uh, while also getting caught up with Zoe Kravitz's Selena Kyle, aka Catwoman, and uh, a rising Lieutenant Gordon played by Jeffrey Wright. So we have all of those kind of familiar characters in play. We also have Colin Farrell playing the Penguin and John Turturro playing. Carmine Falcone, the gangster. Uh, so lots of familiar elements if you've read various comics or even a lot of the things that were kind of explored in the Nolan trilogy. But I do think that Reeves does quite an interesting different take. The fact that it is essentially a murder mystery inherently adds a slightly different flavour to this. It is a film in which we get Batman, the world's greatest detective, doing more detectiving than normal uh, in a very, very atmospheric, super rainy Gotham that has a real tangible feel to it. Well, something I've missed in the Nolan films is I think Batman Begins gave you a really good sense of the feel of Gotham that then kind of shifted throughout that trilogy. I think this one has a really great sense of what Gotham is and, and how Gotham looks and how Gotham feels. You feel It feels like a city that needs scrubbing uh, and that you'd want to scrub yourself if you spent too long in it. <laughs> um, the thing that really caught me about this film, it's very, very long. It's three hours long. And this isn't, hey, it's like, oh, two hours, 30. And we're going to say, oh, it's three hours. No, it's literally three hours long, <laughs> which is a long, long time. But for me, the first two hours or so, I found really, really engrossing. Um and I think a big part of that is the approach that Reeves takes. As I said, it's a lot of Batman. It's a lot of solving these kind of crimes and these riddles left by uh, Paul Dano's Riddler. And the way the film is shot and the way it's edited, it has a sort of glacial quality to it, but also it has a sense of heft and weight. And in a similar way to Dune for me, it had that thing of it's kind of Dune. moving slowly, but always pushing forward and kind of drawing you along with it. And I think the way that it's edited, the thing that stood out to me is that scenes in the Batman sort of don't begin or end. They all kind of hand over to one another. It's not like you've got a scene of them looking in a crime scene and then you've cut and it's daytime and you've got Bruce Wayne off doing a thing. It kind of just pulls you slowly through uh, from scene to scene to place to place to character to character in a way that is kind of hypnotic. And even though it is really long, I think for a lot of the film, it really holds your attention and really kind of gives you an atmosphere to to kind of get lost in, to soak up uh, in this version of Gotham that feels very tangible and very believable. 
And even though it moves kind of slowly, there is a lot of great action stuff in this. It, I mean, within a three-hour runtime, you're getting maybe less action than you'd expect from a previous uh, Batman incarnation. But you get some great stuff here. There's a, a Batmobile chase sequence, which uh, Matt Reeves has previously said is kind of inspired by Christine. His take on the Batmobile is like, it's this it's this hell car that will chase you down, covered in flames. And, and you get some really great shots of that. Um, the Batman fighting stuff is really 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 great and has a an extra sense of snappiness and choreography that doesn't feel too neat but it reminded me a lot of the batman arkham games the way that batman feels like just a fucking tank who will like drop in the middle of, of a bunch of enemies and kind of take them all down it really kind of soaked in some of the atmosphere of those games, which I liked in a big way, uh, without kind of doing, I, I mean, I just called him a tank, but not in the sense that he was in the Snyder films, literally in that big kind of metal suit. And um, Amon will be happy because this is a no-kill rule Batman <laughs> through and through. Mm, um, yeah. But my favourite thing about the kind of way that they approach Batman himself in this film is that a lot of it is pretty much like a buddy crime movie. Not a comedy buddy movie, but like it's the team up between Batman and Lieutenant Gordon. And Jeffrey Wright as, as Jim Gordon is excellent. He is absolutely fantastic in that role. He really gets the spirit of that guy. Uh, and the pairing of these two for much of the runtime trying to track down the Riddler is a great thing to watch. But it is very, very long. Very, very long. <laughs> it is also punishingly dour, like to the point where even Seven had jokes. I think this has got a couple of jokes. In, in the multimedia Does screening, it? there Does are a couple of, I think it's, it draws little bits of humour about how, it, it, on the one hand, it's taking itself very seriously, but there is that inherently ridiculous thing of him wearing a bat costume and flouncing around crime scenes. And there are, there are a few yeah. laughs to be drawn from that. A couple, yeah, some cops collect cast looks at him. Yeah, it's, it's subtle is certainly the way it's... <laughs> some of those are like laughing at it. Like there's a moment yeah. that absolutely reminded me of Lego Batman and I burst out laughing, but I'm not sure that was intended. Yeah. Like I, the thing with this is like, I am 100% here for dark and serious and dour. I live for this shit. Like I was like, I couldn't be more thrilled the more dark the Dark Knight gets. I am there for it. But the thing with this one is, and look, we can talk about the Batman no killing thing. Let's just leave that for another time. I think if you can have a really dark 7S Batman film, he should be killing the shit out of everyone and frankly some of the damage he does to people look pretty fatal to me but that's a whole other discussion but it's just the thing with this is it's it's a good film it is a good film i don't dislike it at all but it i did feel at the end like i had been through an ordeal rather than enjoyed a film because it's very long it's very dour it's quite relentless it's very intense it's entirely humorless and it just it felt like a slog to me and it's weird to say that about a film which i genuinely think is good but at the end i was like oh christ and the thought of watching it again just makes me feel very very tired <laughs> i was uh i didn't hate it uh i also didn't love it i i felt like it was a, a good batman film and a very very bad borderline <laughs> incompetent bruce wayne film uh, and, and I do think you need to do both. I mean, there was somebody on Twitter this week saying, oh, well, this is the first film that's really got that Bruce Wayne is a dweeb. I, I don't think it has. I just think it, it has ignored Bruce Wayne entirely. And I think yeah. if you want to make the case that he's a dweeb and Batman is the real person, I don't think this film deals with that. I don't think it unpacks it properly. Um, 
I've also heard it argued, and I think we'll get into this on the Sporter podcast where, when Amon is here, but that this is a sort of setting up uh, the the real Batman, that this is, you know, it is year two, it is still an evolving Batman, that he's getting to a place where he hasn't quite reached yet. But again, I'm so tired of these films that are their own prequels and they're just assuming that a sequel will come along and then we can really get going with the character who is the icon. It's like, just give me the freaking icon. I know the background already. I don't need it anymore. To this film's credit, it does not show the Waynes getting killed. It flirts with it, but it doesn't show that. Happy days. Love it. Um, and it does kind of assume that we know Batman's origin, which I appreciate because we do. We Everybody does. Um, there are those isolated tribes in the Amazon who have never been contacted by the Western world and they know Batman's origin story. So I appreciate that. Um, but I just felt like certain key elements weren't quite there. Um, you know, his relationship with Alfred, I thought was was hugely underserved, which has plot implications for the film. I, I feel like I like. I, I think the the film is physically dark. I think it's beautifully shot. So if you see this in a film with a well calibrated projector, in, in a cinema with a well calibrated projector, that's not going to be a problem. If you try and watch this at home with the curtains slightly open, you're not going to be able to see a freaking thing on your TV. So do if you're interested in this, do see it in a good cinema because genuinely, I'm not sure what you're going to make out on a on a home screen. So you know, I I did think it was well done on a craft level. You know, the costumes. The makeup, the, the the design of the film is all exceptionally well done. The stunts are great. God bless Robert Pattinson's stunt team. They've all done a very good job. I think he's been quite clear that he did none of it. Um, you know, I think that's all all there. All the craft is there, all the attention, the care. I just have <sighs> I just have certain qualms mm. about the character and, and the way he's presented, as per usual. And it is grim and dark, and unlike James, I don't love that. <laughs> I agree with you entirely on the Bruce Wayne thing. I do enjoy the fact that he just sits around with his eyeliner on and we don't normally see that. <laughs> but I like to think it has nothing to do with the cowl and more to do with him as emo bats. He just sits there with eyeliner on, listening to My Chemical Romance in the Batcave, and that's just who he is. But then play My Chemical Romance, you know? I need to know that detail. <laughs> I mean, they play that Nirvana song quite a lot. Yes, true, <laughs> true. something in the way, which is a great song, but it is a dirge. And I just think that particular song sums up the vibe of this film so perfectly. Yeah. It's just a dum, dum, du du dum. There is a lot of atmosphere in this film. There's maybe more atmosphere than anything else, but that atmosphere is great and it's really engrossing. And it does feel like a nice, refreshing twist. I can see what Helen's saying. You don't get a huge amount of Bruce Wayne. And I feel like you don't get a huge amount of Bruce Wayne, even in the Bruce Wayne scenes. But having that shift from the Nolan films to this one, where in the Nolan films, it was like Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne. Ooh, a Batman scene. Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne. Ooh, a Batman scene. This is basically the opposite in a way that I, I like that we got a lot of the Batman in the Batman. No, I, I, I actually, I don't have a problem with there being a lot of the Batman, but Bruce Wayne didn't f just feel like he wasn't on screen much. He also felt like he was underserved when he was. Like there was very I mean, little development, character, explanation, ex exploration when he was there. And that's, I think, my issue. Though I do like the fact that they have whiny emo Bruce Wayne and he literally turns to Alfred at one point and goes, I hate you, you're not my real dad. And it's just like, that's brilliant. That was the bit where I was just like Lego Batmaning all over the place. I, I just couldn't hack it. I could not hack yeah. it. Darkness, no, <laughs> no parents. It, it, it feels like a film that isn't aware of the existence of that song. And it, it feels yeah. like it's playing into that into that Batman stereotype and that Batman trope without irony. Um, 
uh, listen, there's a lot to admire for me about this movie. I thought the first 40 minutes was terrific. I think the first 10 minutes is is wonderful and it, you know you have such a statement of intent uh right from the off with you know matt reeves is a very very skilled director there's a lot of control over what he's showing you there are things i really really liked i liked uh i liked the the way that something in the way the nirvana song something in the way forms the foundation of Michael Cicchino's Batman theme. I really like that. That score uh, is insanely great. The score is very good. It's very, very good indeed. Uh, I like all the performances. Mm -hmm. I can't really think that there's any that I I find fault with. Uh, I think the central mystery isn't as as mysterious uh, or satisfying as they would want it to be. I think Benoit Blanc and Hercule Poirot and Columbo would have this cracked (laughs) inside five minutes. So I think it slightly undermines Batman as the world's greatest detective. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you have Colin Farrell as a penguin who is not penguin-like in any way, shape or form. and could just be a generic goon from a Scorsese New York mobster thriller, which I thought was interesting. There's nothing penguiny about that guy at all, uh, but he's great. And he is perhaps the film's brightest spark. And when he's on screen, you're like, oh, this is a guy who is having fun. Zoe Kravitz is having fun but fun is not something I think the audience will have a lot during this movie and I felt a little bit pulverized by it at, mm. by the end um, Seven for all that it is dark and it is drenched in rain and it has you know obviously one of the all time gut punch endings Seven is all about William Somerset's humanity and it is it's, it goes out of its way to show you moments where that humanity peeks through in the, the you know in the shafts of light and the darkness of his universe. Those conversations he has in the cafe with with Gwyneth Paltrow's character, you know, for example. And yes, it, you know, a large part of it is you know ultimately about the the dark ironic joke of the universe and takes the light away and it's got a really mm-hmm. dark ending. But it does it does emphasize humanity. I don't think this does. It just felt really suffocating to me. I don't know, though. Again, not to get into spoilers, but where this goes in the final reel, I thought it had a a nice conclusion for Batman himself. There was also stuff um, towards the end of the film that felt genuinely quite scary to to me in a way that I don't really know how I feel about it right now, but I'm quite happy to not know how I feel about that and for that to just sit and maybe to look back in 10 years and go... Was this uh, uh, the right way of portraying certain things? Does that feel like it's capturing a moment that I don't think it maybe was intended to capture when it was first written? Or does it feel like it's doing a disservice to the reality of that? Um, but but the, there was stuff at the end that I felt pleasantly conflicted about. Um, and, and I liked the ultimate conclusion that it drew for for our kind of central character. I have issues with the ultimate conclusion for the central character, which I'm sure we will get into on the spoiler special. But I know some people are very much with you on that. Um, but I think I'm with Chris on this. I think the the relentless gloom is is a bit of a problem. And I would have liked a little bit more Pattinson because I feel like there are moments where you can see him coming through and him giving that little bit of weirdness to both characters because it is freaking weird to dress up as a bat and fight crime. And I think that he gets that and has a, a real understanding of that. And when he kind of played that a little bit and allowed that to seep in a bit, I think it worked really, really well. But I think you're right that there's there's an element of humanity that 
he he clearly feels there are moments where you can see both Bruce Wayne and Batman relating to someone else, connecting with someone else's experience. I'm avoiding spoilers, but there's there's a real kind of like he is clearly experiencing sympathy or empathy in those moments. But you kind of wanted him to show that in some small way in in an action and the, the film doesn't allow him to do that and I think that's one of the things I was most missing here was just a little bit of a twitch in the direction of of his own humanity and and yes point of the film la 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 we get there at the end but I don't think we get there in the right way so yeah uh, close but but not quite ultimately for me it goes back to the question I asked Ben right at the beginning of this this, this review if you remember that it was a good four hours ago <laughs> and it was, is it different enough to justify its existence? And for me, I don't think it is. I think this is very much retreading old ground mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel as different as Nolan's take, even though they were kind of texturally and tonally at times, they were in the same universe. Nolan's take is very different from Burton's take and I'm not sure that Reeves' take is so different from Nolan's take yeah. to justify this. Um, I felt that it, there were moments that were pure, pure Nolan and moments that were pure Snyder actually as well. And um, and I kind of wanted, as you say, something just completely fresh. I feel like now that we've Nolanized Batman, I almost don't feel like there's a way back for me with that character. Like, I like that grounded, gritty iteration of the character, as you know. Uh, so this is kind of what I wanted from I, th- I do think it feels distinct. I wonder it doesn't feel distinct, certainly for me, from, from Nolan. It has its own identity to me. It's just very long and very dour. That's all I'm going to say. Like this podcast, in fact. So like this on. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we gave this four stars. Uh, four stars then for The Batman. Also out this week, complete contrast to The Batman. This is a, a, a absolute masterclass in counter-programming. It's the new film from Clio Barnard, uh, and it is Ali and Ava. Hell's Bells. Yeah, this is billed as a love story, but it feels almost like an, a will-they-won't-they kind of thing for most of its running time because it's so tentative and so kind of understated. So it's set in Bradford. So uh, Ava is played by Claire Rushbrook. So she is um, a grandmother several times over. She is a survivor of an abusive marriage. Uh, she is now working as a teaching assistant in a school. And through one of the little kids that she is looking after, she meets Ali, who's played by Adil Akhtar, who is, um, he's kind of a really amiable, easygoing guy on the surface. He's a landlord, but is very, very friendly with his tenants and, you know, helps them out around the house as well as obviously looking after the houses for them. But he's kind of hiding real trauma. He's also going through the, the separation, a separation from his wife, the possible breakup of his own marriage. He's trying to keep that secret from his close-knit family and trying to keep up appearances. And so there's this kind of instant connection and instant friendship between them. But, you know, it feels very insecure. It feels like they're not sure what status he has, what she wants. His, her members of her family are kind of hostile to anybody coming in and sort of taking their dad's place. So even as a friend, they don't want him around. So it's a really kind of tough situation. And yet there's this connection and yet they can't seem to keep away from each other. And they bond through music over this little girl. They mm. just like each other's company and it feels like they give something to one another that no one else can. So it's a really tentative kind of tender close, closely observed sort of a film. You know, the fact that it's set on a council estate among people who do not have a lot of money, you know, puts it aside from basically any other British rom-com that's kind of out there, or at least most of them. And it, you know, it doesn't kind of gloss over the fact these are people with real world problems. These are people with, you know, limitations on what they can do. And 
limitations that can kind of tie them in and and hem them in from possibilities. And yet there is this kind of connection there and it maybe can endure the whole thing. So it's just beautifully put together. I think Claire Barnard has done a fantastic job here of just creating this world, putting you in it, giving you such a deep understanding of who both characters are and and letting you see the little moments where they connect and where they sort of pull apart and are wary of each other. Um, it, it really creates a, se- a sense of enormous, I don't know, romantic tension without having to create artificial barriers between them to stop them getting together. I thought you were going to say it gives me a sense of enormous well-being. <laughs> I mean, it does, so ultimately. It does, but it, uh, it, it ain't a walk in the park anyway. So, so yeah, we gave this four stars. I think it's beautifully, beautifully done. Four stars indeed. So Clive Barnard, if you don't know, directed The Arbor and The Selfish Giant, which still haunts me to this day. Yeah. Uh, great film. Not an easy sit by any stretch of the imagination. I haven't seen Alien Avery yet, but uh, we gave it four stars and uh, sounds like an absolute belter. So go and check out Alien Ava if you don't fancy men dressed up as bats punching people who are vaguely penguin-esque in the face. Two films to avoid. I think we should uh, <laughs> use this 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 uh, podcast as a public service. Uh, one is on Sky. It is The Desperate Hour, or as I've come to think of it, The Desperate Hour in 20 Minutes. It is the new film from Philip Noyce, and it's not Noyce, it's Boyd. <laughs> but he's good. He is good. He can be good. He can be very, very good. Uh, he's the director of Dead Calm, of course, the director mm. of Clear and Present Danger, the director of Salt, if you like that movie. I uh, But this is not his finest hour and 20 minutes. This stars Naomi Watts as a, a, a mother whose husband has passed away in a car accident and, and as the the first anniversary of his death approaches, uh, she goes for a run. And as she goes for this very, very long run, she finds that her, her son may or may not be involved in a school shooting. And she tries desperately to use her phone skills to somehow get to the bottom of the situation. It means well. It's not very good. It's basically watching Naomi Watts out of breath for an hour. I don't think we have an official review of this yet. I'd give it two stars. It it really was not satisfying in any way, shape or form. Speaking of not satisfying in any way, shape or form, we have a Medea homecoming. It's like Portals, but if Portals were incompetent uh, and instead of bringing you all the Avengers to save the day, it brought you Medea, played by Tyler Perry, and Mrs. Brown from Mrs. Brown's Boys, played by Brendan O'Carroll. And the two of them have come together. No one's asked for this. As far no as one. I can tell, no one's asked for this. No, I cer- certainly didn't. It was unbelievably terrible. I have seen some Medea stuff before. I can't say I've seen all, I think, 12 of her films. But I, I just was unprepared for how forced the humour was here throughout. Um, so... You know, th- there's a there's a, a running. I want to say gag, but that's not quite the word. Um, where when Mrs. Brown says the word Ireland, they hear Iran, so they know she's Irish. <laughs> Sorry, so when I'm she's already. when she's you know suggesting that they come and visit her in Ireland, and they're like, no, no, there's too much sand and desert. I'm sorry. Are you? I I know that accents are a thing, but also I cannot figure that out. It's just very bad. The idea is that their two families are united when uh, respective great nephews are about to graduate from college, and so they've been brought together by these great nephews to attend this graduation. It should be a happy time, but wouldn't you know it? Family secrets come out, and Medea has to offer advice to get everyone through it, while Mrs. Brown 
does whatever she does. I, I, I just, it was very bad. It's really very bad. Don't, you might think, oh no, it can't be that bad. Or maybe it's so bad, it's good. It's not. It's so bad, it's bad. It's an unholy meeting of two very, very unfunny characters. Uh, and I just wish it had never happened. See, it's bad. It's very bad. But it's not as bad as Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie, which remains one of the worst films I've ever seen. My wife and I chuckled a couple of times. I, I'm not I, 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 I don't I don't know. I, I assume you're still get jet lagged. I, I can't. I don't know. I can't you know, explain that. There were there were a couple of jokes that landed and there oh. are many jokes that don't land, but there were a couple so of jokes many. that did land. So, so you know, whereas Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie is an atrocity. Uh, and and an incompetently staged one as well. Whereas this one, you know, Tyler Perry knows how to direct at least. He knows how to stage things, knows how where to put the camera and how to block scenes and have people talking without falling over. Little things like that. So on that level, way better than to horror to horror. But anyway, there you mm, go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still sending one star. One star, says Helen. Anyway, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, it's been a long, long slog, but we're finally at the uh, the the finishing line. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Rosalie Chang and Sandra Oh, the stars of the new Disney Pixar film Turning Red. I thought they were on this week's show. Turns out I got my release dates all wrong, so they're actually on next week's show. So Turning Red is out next week on Disney Plus, not in cinemas. Boo! Boo! But it will be on Disney Plus, and they will be on the Empire podcast. There may be another guest as well, but I'm not willing to confirm them because it hasn't happened yet. Until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squadcast names, because we're back on squadcast this week, hopefully back in the studio next week. The Robin, it has to be Ben Travis, my beloved son, Oh, Chris, I'm I'm excited about our future as parent and child. Although Robin is an orphan, just saying. Oh, oh. <laughs> wait a minute! Oh, no. Wait a minute! You'll be going to bed without Lembus bread, if you know what I mean. I, oh, I no. don't want the Lembus bread. I know what you do with the Lembus bread, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it is goodbye from Justice for Ginger Clive, James yeah. Dyer. That's right. Ginger Clive. I refer, of course, to Clive Gibbons. Clive Gibbons, of course, played by, played by Jeff Payne. Clive Gibbons, who was in Neighbours way, way, way back in the 80s and is now back again, but is now out of work because Neighbours has died. Neighbours is no more. It's finished. Uh, Channel 5 announced recently that they weren't going to do it anymore, and now it, they yep. haven't found a replacement broadcaster. So Neighbours is ending in the summer. Justice for Ginger Clive. I mean, Sorry, have you watched it in the last 20 years, James? Oh, fuck no. But right. I feel like it's a, you know, it's an institution. It should never end. It should outlive all of us, as should Ginger Clive. Ginger Clive, incidentally, the reason I, I latch onto him as a character is because I went Why to, I think I've happening? told you this before, I went to a signing once at Debenhams in Harrow, and Ginger Clive was signing autographs, and I got him to sign something for me. It's very exciting. I have no memory of this character at you, all. You don't know Clive Gibbons? No. I don't know. I, do. I know Harold. No Cole Kennedy. I know Madge. No, Car- Dr. Carl Kennedy. Get Helen it right. Helen Robinson. Who can forget Helen? Who can forget Jim Robinson clutching his chest? Oh, right. poor oh. Jim. And then he went oh, on to Helen bigger Dale. things. Yeah, probably, the, probably the, the neighbor cast member who's had the most success post neighbors, <laughs> I would say. I can't yeah, think of anyone else. Definitely. He's definitely the most high profile. <laughs> can't think of anyone else. Mm. Uh, oh, what's, what's going to become of Lassiter's? Yeah. You know what they should do? 
Yes. You know what they should do? Yes. They should, they should take hotel. it over. Right. Immersive nice experience. hotel experience, yes. where Stefan Dennis pops out of a of an air conditioning vent and sings "Don't Make You Feel Good" at you. That would be the premium experience. Oh, I'm fully on board with this. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, it's goodbye from the soldier servant, Helen O'Hara. Yes, of course, if you look up your world's military history, you will find that that was the original name of the the military figure who came to be known as the Batman. Anyway, bye. Wow. I'm so confused about everything that's happened in the last 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone wants to do an immersive hotel based on the Empire podcast, just have a bit where <laughs> Helen says something about history and the rest of us stare at the space. We can, we can make, make Helen's that happen. history room, James's Jamesplanation experience. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll have a room where if you walk in, you automatically love a film that no one else seems to like. <laughs> it could be The Matrix Resurrections, could be Rise of Skywalker, could be you name it. Yep. Fantastic, Fantastic Beasts. Beast. Fantastic Beasts. Fantastic Beasts. Fantastic Beasts. Wonder Woman 1984. Yep. It's a lonely room. Oh. Someone join oh, me in the phone God, room. You've oh. been wrong about so many things. I forget. <laughs> I forget them. So like, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know Rice Oh, yeah, I know Metro. Oh, fuck me. Yes, he gave Wonder Woman 1984 four stars. Yeah, it's Honestly, just a litany of horror, point, isn't it? You will be summoned to some kind of tribunal to atone it for your crimes. It deserves 1,984 stars, James. Oh, you are oh, the oh worst. God. No, Jesus. I mean, he's really That's not, because so you're in the room, James. Come on. Oh, <laughs> no. oh. Anyway, it is goodbye from me absolutely riddled with it. I have no idea what that refers to, but um, but there you go. Lembus anyway, bread, probably. Lembus bread, indeed. Uh, speaking of which, it's time for lunch. Anyone fancy some Lembus bread? Not anymore. It's still warm. No. Oh, I bet no. it is. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.